We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 111 of the Spurs Up Show, the best Gamecocks podcast on the internet. Got a packed show as Brad Crawford of 247 Sports and I bring you part two of our game-by-game predictions for the Gamecocks 2019 football season. We break down the last six weeks of the South Carolina season, including Carolina's road trip to Athens, arguably the toughest three-game stretch of the year, the annual robbery game with Clemson, and much, much more. Also, have a fantastic interview with former South Carolina Gamecocks offensive lineman and professional wrestler Del Wilkes as we chat about being one of just four consensus All-Americans in program history, playing for the legendary coach Joe Morrison, the 1984 Black Magic season, being known as the Trooper and the Patriot during his wrestling days, and much, much more. Before we dive into all that, this is a podcast presented to you, as always, by our friends over at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, the best ticket-buying app by far, the only ticket-buying app I use, and the only one that I recommend. Go download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Use the promo code SPURSUP to save $10 off your first purchase. They've got literally tickets to anything and everything, guys, from South Carolina Gamecock sporting events, concerts, comedy club events, festivals, you name it. Any sporting event you need, they've got a great ticket rating system, which actually rates the tickets for you based on the type of deal you're getting. So before you click the buy button, you know exactly what you're getting. It makes it very, very easy and makes the buying process super simple for you guys. So again, please go download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Use our promo code SPURSUP, that's S-P-U-R-S-U-P, to save $10 off your first purchase. All right, let's get into it. I'm Chris Phillips, your host of the Spurs Up Show. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in for a very exciting show, obviously. We left you guys on a bit of a cliffhanger last episode as Brad Crawford and I. We bring you part two of our game-by-game prediction for the Gamecocks 2019 football season. Obviously, last time we talked to you, Brad and I both had South Carolina 4-1 and one going into the bye week, obviously setting up a big matchup in a couple of weeks in Athens, Georgia, against the Bulldogs. But obviously, Gamecock fans feeling pretty good. 4-1 and one overall is what our predictions had us. We're going to go ahead and jump right into it starting with the bye week. Hope you guys enjoy. So the Gamecocks are 4-1, and one, Brad, going into the bye week. I mean, you mentioned earlier, but I mean, the mood in Columbia has got to be pretty good if South Carolina's 4-1 and one in that bye week. I mean, again, you're only – you talked about that over-under 5.5. South Carolina only two games away from hitting that over. I mean, the, the mood, again, is going to be pretty good for Will Muschamp and company sitting at 4-1 and one in the bye with a huge road matchup at Georgia upcoming. I think you're right, especially, you know, having 
uh, Georgia is is playing Tennessee that week during the Gamecocks bye week. So South Carolina is is going to have a leg up uh, in that rivalry. I think is as far as preparation is concerned. Uh, Tennessee is not going to beat Georgia this season, obviously, but um, th- those two teams always play a, a tough physical matchup, and the Gamecocks are going to come in, you know, according to our picks on that two-game winning streak with, with, with some confidence. Um, last season, I think South Carolina maybe came in a little too overconfident at home against Georgia. I took a beating last season because I, you know, I was one of the lone national analysts who I went ahead and stuck my neck out there and and took took South Carolina to win that game. You know, I I was I was buying into the Williams Bryce hype and mystique. I thought Will Muschamp would you know, get off the snide against ranked teams and, and beat his primary rival in the East, but it didn't happen. You know, Rico Dowdle laid it at pick six uh, early in the game that Georgia took it back and scored, and then Miko Hardman and, and Georgia's running game just, just dominated. So uh, this is a very big game for South Carolina, and as we mentioned, of those three against top three teams in the preseason, uh, one that I'm picking to be very close at the end. No doubt. So let's get into it, Brad. Georgia week. South. It's always a big one. South Carolina and Georgia, the border war. Gamecocks haven't beaten the dogs since 2014 in an epic classic at Williams-Rice Stadium. Um, you know, South Carolina has struggled in Athens. There's no doubt. Gamecocks, you know, the game that sticks out to me for whatever reason is the 2015 game when South Carolina got absolutely taken apart in Athens. But last showing was pretty good. 2017, South Carolina, what, lost 24-10. to 10. I thought the Gamecocks, especially for Will Muschamp's second season, um, showed a lot of fight in that one. Um, this is, again, South Carolina is going to be their second test in the big three. We talked about earlier and we both talked about this is – there is a potential for the upset here. I think just from the style of play, obviously, with Jake Fromm, um, you know, coming into this one, one of the best quarterbacks in the country, obviously, with the news of the, uh, the receiver dismissed a couple weeks ago. It was Jermaine Holiday, I believe his name was. Um, he was dismissed. Jeremiah Holloman, yeah. Jeremiah Holloman, yeah. He was dismissed a couple weeks ago. There are a lot of questions with the Georgia pass catchers as they really return no one from last year's squad that really made a significant contribution uh, for the dogs. And, you know, you fully expect Georgia's going to be a team that's going to compete with the college football playoff this season, most likely going to win the SEC East and go toe-to-toe with Alabama for the SEC championship. Um, I will say, Brett, I, you know, right now I've got Georgia winning this one, but I think it'll be a fairly close game. I've got the dogs similar to 2017 winning it 24 to 13. I, I just think, again, this is kind of one of those games for me, Brad, where I'm very much in wait and see mode until I see Jake Bentley. You know, I know what he did against Clemson. I know what he did against Clemson with the 500 yard passing game. And until I see Jake Bentley go on the road between the hedges and play well, it, it's very, it's very, very hard for me to predict that's going to happen. What, what say you for the, for the Gamecocks road trip uh, between the hedges? I think your take's a very fair assessment. Um, I'm kind of going on the limb a little bit. I'm, I'm taking Georgia 31-30 in really the game of the year on the South Carolina schedule. Um, I'm, I'm not picking the upset, but I think Jake has a game to remember, uh, keeps the Gamecocks in the game throughout. And I'm going to be honest, you know, between these three – elite team South Carolina will play, Alabama, Georgia, and Clemson. I think everybody will agree that Jake Fromm is probably the third best quarterback among those teams, Tua Tonga-Valoa and Trevor Lawrence, uh, starting at Alabama and and Clemson, respectively. You know, Jake never does anything to uh, wow you, I I would say. Uh, He doesn't lose games either, though. He is – he's the definition of a game manager who who makes plays when he has to. Uh, His game, in my opinion, mirrors A.J. McCarron. 
Um, I don't I don't think McCarron got enough credit for the plays that he made against Alabama. He led several fourth quarter comebacks during his brilliant career. Um, but, but, you know, he was never mentioned among the best in college football. Um, I think Jake Fromm's underrated in that regard as well. But uh, I think Georgia's lack of wide receivers is a storyline that we should be talking about a little more this offseason. I think we assume that, you know, DeAndre Swift, Zamir White, James Cook, and that, you know, three-headed plus rushing attack they have is just going to run over everybody. But Georgia's a team that is going to need to play well defensively. They replaced six starters off that side of the ball. And uh, this is a game for, for Georgia that, that comes pre-Florida. And, you know, Florida is a game that Bulldogs fans always circle. So I think South Carolina catches Georgia in a very good spot here. But um, I just can't go against Fromm at home. And I think late with the Gamecocks leading 30-24, to 24, uh, Bulldogs have a last-second drive that, that really uh, really puts a stain on, on an otherwise pretty decent season for South Carolina. Wow, thirty-one to thirty. I mean that 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 is that would be that would hurt, right? It would hurt, but it would be a hell of a result because I'm thinking back to kind of what you said against Alabama. What'd you say, Brad? That if it's a what forty-five to thirty-eight or forty-five thirty-four game, it's considered a win. I mean, would you consider sure. that? I mean, I know it's a different set of circumstances because I do agree with you. Jake Fromm is without a doubt the third best quarterback of those big three teams. But I mean because of South Carolina's struggles against elite competition, especially looking back last year against Georgia, that, that way that game turned out, I mean, would it be considered a step in the right direction or progress, if you will, if South Carolina were to lose a nail-biter like that, or would it be just, just pure heartbreak and nothing positive could be taken out of it for Carolina? Look, there, there's not a single national analyst. There, there might be some homers in Columbia saying otherwise, but there, there's not a single analyst picking – Gamecocks to beat Alabama, Georgia, or Clemson this season. If they can go 0-3 in those games and all three games be respectable, you know, I'm talking one or two score games in the fourth quarter, I think that's a win for Will Muschamp. You you can't expect the current roster he has to beat, you know, one of the three best programs, in my opinion, in college football, no matter where the game's played, no matter the stakes, that sort of thing. Um, I don't I don't see the Gamecocks winning one of those three games this season, but I do think they're going to show improvement, and that's a step in the right direction for Muschamp. You know, he he's going to have other opportunities this season to win, um, I would call them, you know, more more favorable matchups against top 25 teams um, outside of Alabama, Georgia, and Clemson. But this is a game that I think South Carolina will not only show up like they didn't do last season, but, you know, they're going to, they're going to uh, strike some fear in the hearts of Georgia fans in Athens between the hedges because, let's face it, if Georgia loses to South Carolina. Um, that they're going to have to win out and beat Alabama in Atlanta to reach the playoff. And in the SEC, man, having your back against the wall is not a very good place to be. Wow, I mean, thirty-one thirty—that's a heck of. I mean, I, I just I'm thinking of that game in my head right now. I mean, it's it's the worst part about it, Brad, is that if you gave me that score and that entire result right now, I'd sign up for it. I, I as bad as that sounds, I would sign up for it just because of how. South Carolina has struggled in, in those games. I mean, just to see South Carolina go toe-to-toe with, you know, I think you would probably consider Georgia one of the elites, you know, one of the elite programs. And we talk about – Of course. Fair before that there are realistically five or – really only five or six teams that can truly compete for a national title in college football. And Georgia's one of those. Yep. So, I mean, if the Gamecocks can go to the wire with one of those teams, I you know, it'll be disappointing. It'll be heartbreaking. But – 
inside after a couple of days, you have to think it'll make you feel good at least about the direction of the program that, hey, maybe South Carolina can win these games. So, uh, very interesting, very interesting. So, Brad, 31-30 Georgia. I've got Georgia 24-13, to has the Gamecocks at 4-2 and now in what makes it a very pivotal game, Brad. Again, the Florida Gators come to town to Columbia. South Carolina obviously um, up 17 points with four minutes left in the third quarter and found a way to lose that one in Gainesville. Um, I know you and I have a little bit different views on the Florida Gators. Uh, I'll go ahead first on my prediction for this one, Brad. You know, I, I think Florida, you know, and maybe it's warranted, but the Gators are getting a lot of hype, obviously, with Dan Mullen. He's obviously one of the best coaches in the SEC. Felipe Franks returns at quarterback, which I think no matter what you think of him, his actually his stat line turned out very well. You talked about he's a guy that, if you really study the film, played a lot better than maybe – the rap that he gets from people. Um, and it's a Gators team that has a lot of talent. Listen, Florida's always going to be able to recruit. They're a household name. They're a brand down in the state of Florida. And there's just so many good players down there. But, Brad, the one thought that I can't get out of my mind when I think of this Florida Gators team is South Carolina being up 17 points in the third quarter and the way they dominated that game for almost three full quarters. I can't get that thought out of my head when I think of these Gators. I'm just not buying the hype that Florida might be a double-digit win team this year, a 9-3 and win team. I've got the Gamecocks winning this one. I think this one will be the thriller. South Carolina winning 34-31 to um, in Columbia. Jake Bentley having a big day in this one. Similar really to what he did last year, and I think South Carolina's defense comes up with just enough stops. They come up with a late stop to win this one, maybe a late J.C. Horn interception to seal the game and get the 34-31 win. Yeah, last season's game was was arguably the most stomach-turning, toughest one to watch uh, for, for Gamecock fans. Outside of that bowl loss, man, I don't, I don't remember Muschamp being as trashed as much on social media as he was after that game. Um, Gamecocks had that, you know, two-touchdown lead in that game and, and squandered it. And, it was kind of a head scratching. The the entire second half, the, the play calling in that one was kind of bizarre. Um, a lot of that, you know, came out after the game on, you know, what happened, what went wrong, why they didn't go back to their first half game plan, and that sort of thing. You know, I've I've gone back and forth on on this game all off season, man. Um, I think the Gamecocks, if if they do lose that thirty one to thirty type game to Georgia, I think they're going to have some momentum coming into this game with. with a little bit of confidence too, but um, you know I'm I'm high on Florida. Like like you said, you know we don't have the same opinion on the Gators this season. Um, I watched Felipe Franks extensively last fall, and there were there were times where he was a elite level quarterback, and times where you would think maybe Dan Mullen might might make a change. But um, I've been asked a lot this off season, you know, who's the third best quarterback in the SEC behind Tua and Jake Fromm, and it's, it's Franks or, or, or Kellen Mond for me, the uh, dual threat at A&M. And I think Franks has a, a very good season during his second full year as a starter. Um, I've got Florida 24-20 in this one. Like I said, I'm, I'm going back and forth a lot. I'll, I'll probably change my mind again mid-August. But this is the second biggest, biggest game of the year to me, in my opinion, um, October 19th in Columbia, first being Kentucky. Uh, I think if the Gamecocks can beat Kentucky and Florida, they're going to easily hit that overwind total, and you're going to, you know, going to be mentioning a a successful season from Muschamp. But you know, right now though, uh, I've got Florida winning this game by a touchdown late in the game. 
Brad, how important, because I, I don't think it's fair. I think Florida right now is ahead of South Carolina as a program. I think I don't think that's crazy to say. I mean, I think it'd be unfair to say that South Carolina is ahead of where Florida is as a program because, you know, Dan Mullen is, you know, this is, what is this, only his second year? I mean, it's, it's uh, nobody's, nobody nationally is going to say the Gamecocks are ahead of Florida as far as a program. But you look at the, the past nine meetings, South Carolina's won five of them. Um, they have the chance to, for the decade at least, go six and four against the Gators. I mean, how important do you think this one is? I, this, I've talked about already my, you know, my most my most important three game stretch with Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, and kind of the SEC East hierarchy. I mean, how important would you say this one is for as far as the hierarchy of these two programs, and maybe the trajectory of these two programs? Because again, Will Muschamp in his fourth season, Dan Mullen in his second. Um, is this an important game, would you say, for the trajectories of bro- both those different programs? Yeah, from a national standpoint, I think Florida has um, a little more leeway, whether it can go up or down. Um, I think national analysts respect Dan Mullen right now as a head coach a little bit more than Muschamp, maybe because, you know, Mullen did so at Mississippi State, a program that was sort of dormant for a while. You know, he beat uh, several ranked teams there, had a transcendent player in in Dak Prescott and, you know, hasn't – he doesn't have that play right now at Florida, but he can certainly recruit that. Um, you know, he coached Tim Tebow during his previous stint at Florida. He's known as a quarterback guru. I think in due time the Gators are going to get a, a five-star guy under center who kind of brings that program back to prominence. But, you know, getting back to South Carolina side of things, this is a game at williams Bryce Stadium where the Gamecocks have fared pretty well against the Gators. A couple of years ago, there was that just strange turnover field mess um, that, you know, I, I lost some money on that when I, I had Gamecocks covering. And I think uh, I think there was some crazy last-second score or something that, that helped Florida cover in that game. This is a very, a very strange game. Uh, Bentley had a couple picks, didn't, didn't play particularly well. But um, I think it'll come down to quarterback play once again. And Jake Bentley, you know, versus the elite defenses he's played during his career outside of Clemson um, hasn't fared too well. So uh, I think Florida's defense will be better this season. I don't, I don't see Jake having the success that he had in Gainesville. I think uh, Todd Grantham, the Florida D.C., is going to remember some of the film from last season and, and what went wrong. And um, like I mentioned, I've got the Gators in a close one. No doubt. So moving into the next week, Brad, Gamecocks travel to Knoxville at Tennessee. I've got South Carolina at five and two. You've got Carolina at four and three now, trying to avoid falling to 500. Um, again, this is one that you and I have very, had very, very much uh, heated conversations about the Tennessee Volunteers with Jeremy Pruitt, their program, obviously, um, you know, improving year after year. Obviously, Jeremy Pruitt trying to get the Vols back to where Philip Fulmer had them in their glory days in the 90s, things of that nature. But, uh, it's funny, for all the conversations we've had, Brad, and for all the hate that I give you, you know, I look at Florida and Tennessee, I'll tell you, those two games, and it's hard for me right now to say South Carolina's going to win both of them. I think they're going to lose one of those. It's just hard for me to pick them both as a win. So I'll go ahead and tell you, as much grief as I've given you, for whatever reason, this game sticks out to me that I've got Tennessee winning this one 27 to 20. I, I just, for game. Oh, look at you. I've got you. I, I've got I know, you thinking I know. about it a little too hard now. Look as much you. grief as I've given you, you know what? This is a place, Knoxville, that's really been a house of horrors for Carolina. Um, they've only won there twice, uh, 2005 and 2011. Uh, excuse me, three times. Also won there in 2017 in the game where the Gamecocks won 15 to 9 and literally needed a last second. 
Um, last second stand to win that one. This just similar to kind of what I said, Brad, earlier about Missouri. This feels like one of those games where South Carolina has been living on the edge with Tennessee for so long, winning these one-score games, these close games. And I think it finally comes to a head in Knoxville this year where Tennessee kind of gets one back at South Carolina. Um, I think it'll be a disappointing game. I think it'll be a game that Carolina fans are coming in expecting to win. And I think South Carolina will not play well. Um, I, I think they'll get beat that day. I think Tennessee will win it 27 to 20 and, and be leave a really bad taste in South Carolina fans' mouths. Yeah, I've got the Vols 27, 24. And, you know, I've, I've liked this pick since about January because I've, Tennessee's one of my surprise teams this season. I've got the Vols potentially getting to eight wins, which would be incredible for Jeremy Pruitt in his second season with, with that roster. Um, if they get to eight, obviously they, they have to beat the Gamecocks. You know, South Carolina has essentially played with fire, like you mentioned, these, these last three years under Muschamp against the Vols. But they've won every game. But, you know, you, you're too close to the heat, you're going to get burned eventually. Um, you go back to that comeback in 2016 the Gamecocks had, the only win over a ranked team so far in Coach Muschamp's tenure. Um, that impressive, dominant defensive effort in 2017 that came down to a – what a five-play, six-play goal line stand <laughs> in, in about, closing in seconds. about seven seconds, too. Yeah. Good grief. Um, yeah. and and then last season, three-point win in Columbia. Gamecocks were down twelve points in that game. So, um, really, you know, South Carolina should have should have maybe lost two of those three games. They won all three. I think this is the year that finally Tennessee ends the skid. And according to my projection, man, that would be three consecutive losses for the Gamecocks after starting four and one. Um, South Carolina has only lost three straight under Muschamp once, and that came during his first season. So I know Gamecock fans don't want to hear it, but a winless October is a strong possibility. Yeah, and like I said, Brad, I, I hate it because I can't believe that I am, uh, I'm picking Tennessee to win that one, but it, it's just a game that scares me. Like you said, you play with fire long enough. It didn't gonna... take much to change your mind. <laughs> Looking at the schedule, that's all it took. It, it, yeah. you know, it just comes to a point where, like you said, you play with fire long enough, you're going to get burned. I think the Vols are – listen, I, I don't expect Tennessee – I don't think this is a game where Tennessee is going to beat South Carolina because they're that much better of a football team. I, I think this is going to – like I said, I think I agree. it's going to be yeah. a disappointing game. I don't think South Carolina is going to play particularly well. And I'm kind of banking on that Knoxville, just despite the wins in 20 – the win in 2017, it just – it has not been a place where South Carolina has played good football. Let's face that. I mean, even the great South Carolina teams throughout 2010 to 2013, the, the, the 2011 win was the only one they got in Knoxville. Obviously, we don't even want to discuss the 2013 game, the Marquez North catch that, you know, really dismantled all hopes of South Carolina winning the SEC East that year. But, I mean, even the years, you know, Brad, that 2011 when South Carolina won – that was a very close game. I mean, South Carolina's never gone into Knoxville and really just taking care of business and, you know, taking care of that Tennessee squad. So I think, again, it finally comes to a head. Tennessee breaks through. And um, it's crazy to think that Will Muschamp has as good a record as he has against the Tennessee Volunteers because the way people talk about Will Muschamp, you wouldn't think he's that good against anyone. But I think, what is it, Will Muschamp is 7-0 or 8-0 against the Vols so far. Tennessee, I think I think Vols fans will be sick to their stomach if they let Will Muschamp get another one on them. And I, I just – I fear that they break through this year and catch the Gamecocks at a time where, um, like you said, if, if Carolina does lose 31-30 at Georgia and then beats Florida, like I predicted, I, I think they could maybe come in and ride a little high overconfident and – and uh, not play just not play particularly well. So uh, we both got Tennessee winning that one, which is not something I would have uh, 
would have projected a couple months ago. But going into um, a much needed, I, I don't want to say relief, if you will, Brad, because I think this one could be tricky too. But Gamecocks come back home. Um, I've got South Carolina at five and three. You've got Carolina at four and four now, sitting at 500, facing the Vanderbilt Commodores, um, a team that South Carolina has beaten 11 straight times, which, you know, Brad, when you think about it, and South Carolina's, you know, South Carolina's kind of had a mixed bag of results against every SEC team, including, you know, with lately the Kentucky Wildcats, five straight losses. The fact that South Carolina has been able to sustain an 11-game winning streak against Vanderbilt um, is very impressive, and I know is something that drives the probably the 50 Vanderbilt fans that have season tickets absolutely batty. But South Carolina in this one again, come they're going to be coming in, Brad, very much so needing a win. Um, how do you see this one playing out in Columbia? Do you see the uh, the Gamecocks getting back on track against the Doors? Yeah, and you know that that 11 year streak, Chris, includes I think what two or three nine win seasons for Vanderbilt under James Franklin. So yeah. for whatever reason, the Gamecocks despite some of the games being hella ugly, uh, have, have beaten the Commodores. Yeah, th- this, is a, this is a win here, in my opinion. Uh, much needed after that three-game skid that I'm projecting. Um, I don't think it'll be a multi-touchdown snooze fest like last season's game was, um, but the Gamecocks are a better team. Uh, one, one player I do want to highlight for Vanderbilt is Keyshawn Vaughn, probably the most underrated player in the SEC. Um, you know, Ralph Webb got a lot of love during his career several thousand yard seasons. Keyshawn Vaughn is going to be a, a early round pick once he goes out at running back. Uh, he's a guy last season who had about 200 yards against Baylor um, in that bowl game. Watch all of that and a very good player. So um, going to be another line of scrimmage type game for South Carolina. It always is against Vanderbilt. Usually you can count on the Commodores, you know, shooting themselves in the foot a couple times and getting a couple of short fields off of that. So um, at, at home, I'm, I'm pretty confident in, Gamecocks winning this game, but I will say this. I, I was at the 2007 home loss to Vanderbilt, and, man, you, you ever want to hear a, pin, a uh, pin drop in Williams-Brice Stadium, that was it. That was that was one of the low points of uh, me following the Gamecocks throughout my life. Oh, no, I imagine that 07 season where South Carolina started 6-1, and one, was ranked sixth in the country, and lost five straight, including that Vanderbilt game. Um to really cap off I me, mean, one of the, like you said, one of the more disappointing seasons in Carolina history. But um, what's your uh, what's your final score for this one, Brad? Yeah, I don't think Vanderbilt gets more than an offensive touchdown. Uh, I'll say twenty-seven to ten. Twenty-seven ten. Okay. I, like I mentioned before, I've got South Carolina in a game in Knoxville, disappointing, not playing their best. I actually think South Carolina bounces back in a big way, gets back on track, and beats the Doors. Uh, 31 to seven. I don't think it'll be particularly close. I think at this point in the season, Brad, T. Rob and Will Muschamp will really have that defense rolling. I, again, I, like I mentioned before, I'm I'm pretty high on the defense. I think they have a lot of athletes on that side. As long as they can stay healthy, obviously, which was a major issue last year. But I, I just think, like you mentioned, with the loss of Kyle Shermer, um, Keyshawn Vaughn's a guy that I profile when I did our opponent preview of Vanderbilt. Obviously, a guy that's extremely explosive shifty can make guys miss the threat to take it to the house anytime he touches the ball but I don't think it'll be enough I think South Carolina's defense is a dominant day and I think uh I think Gamecocks will load the box all day long and make it really tough for Vanderbilt really to even get it past the 50 I think they dominate this one and win 31 to 7 and again get a much needed win and really get back on track and for my projections get bowl eligible I think they'll move to six and three after this for you Gamecocks Gamecocks will be one win away at five and four so let's move into the next that next week Brad um, as South Carolina takes on Appalachian State 
Um, I, again, I've got South Carolina at six and three. You've got Carolina at five and four. Brad, I'll ask you, is this one that you feel is being overplayed, maybe overhyped as a potential upset? I, I know that Appalachian State has done some great things in the Sun Belt. Obviously, they were a great program at the FCS level, but they've done some great things since they're come up to the to the uh, to the, to the Sun Belt. Um, obviously, they've got a great quarterback in Zach Thomas, a guy who's done really well at that level. But do you think the upset card is being a little bit overplayed in terms of this game? I'm going to be honest. I don't. I don't think it is. I've I've seen the Gamecocks, you know, play these non-conference November games before, and while they've won them, you know, they they haven't looked particularly good in in a few of those games. And you play a team like App State, who's used to double-digit win seasons, and doesn't often get to play Power Five teams. I mean, they're they're going to come in there, and the Gamecocks are going to get their best shot. Zach Thomas is one of the best quarterbacks. South Carolina will play on the schedule the entire year. You know, I've I've spoken to several people within the program earlier this spring about this game, and I can tell you the Mountaineers have South Carolina's full attention. This is not going to be a game that Muschamp and players and his staff overlook. You know, they are certainly leery of how good Appalachian State has been in the past, and you know, how many starters they got coming back. So um, App State's a bowl team, might be a conference championship type team. And uh, I think it'll be a, a respectable game, maybe a 31-24 type win. Um, I don't think the line for this game is going to be too high either. I'd, I'd say Gamecocks minus seven right now if I had to handicap it. All right, well, Brad, I'll tell you in this game the way I see it playing out. I honestly – I think it will be a close game early on. I really do. Um, I've got South Carolina winning this one, though, 44-28. I think they pull away late. Okay. I just – I just, you know, listen, I understand that Appalachian State has got some athletes. They've got Zach Thomas. They've got different playmakers. A lot of guys returning. But, Brad, can we both agree that if we're worried, if we're truly, genuinely worried about Appalachian State – beating the Gamecocks in year four of the Will Muschamp era. This thing isn't exactly playing out the way we all hoped it would. I mean, let's just be honest. I, I, you know, there are plenty of games on this schedule to worry about, in my opinion. If South Carolina is realistically going into that game worrying about losing, and again, I understand as the history of South Carolina and, you know, South Carolina fans being weary of, of non-conference games, and, you know, especially in November, but realistically, the way I'm looking at it, this is not one that South Carolina should be – overly concerned with maybe that's the wrong take maybe that's the wrong way to look at I want to give all the respect to App State because again as a program they've done so much they've actually got a new head coach this year Eli Drinkwitz who I think that's a really interesting uh interesting matchup because the last time the Gamecocks saw Eli Drinkwitz he was the offensive coordinator of NC State a game in which NC State gained I think over 500 yards against the South Carolina Gamecocks, even though South Carolina found But they had to run 99 plays to do it. Right, or, right. You know, whatever right. it was. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But either way, um, so a, a somewhat familiar matchup. But I just think, Brad, that if the Gamecocks are realistically worried about an upset-type bid in this one, and again, like you mentioned, App State is certainly going to come in and play this up as, you know, their Super Bowl. With all due respect to their program and the games on their schedule, they're going to play this up as an opportunity, again, to beat a Power 5 opponent, to beat an SEC team to go into somebody's house and pull the upset. I think it will be close early on. Again, I think, you know, Appalachian State does have some ball players, and they've got Zach Thomas. Anytime you have a quarterback of that caliber, um, you're going to be able to hang around. But I, I just think the Gamecocks, if they're not able to pull away late, Brad, in my opinion, um, you know, I, I don't want to say you're going to sell the stock on Will Muschamp in this program due to a close win. But, 
if they're not able to pull away late, it's going at that point in the season, especially, it's going to raise some, at least raise my eyebrows and draw some concern for me, to be honest with you. Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure the Gamecocks have ever had the offense under Will Muschamp where they can, you know, at, at will put their foot on the gas and, and pull away from what I consider a, a high-quality team like App State. I think a lot of times people get it mixed up that since they're not a Power 5 school, uh, you know, that, you know, maybe they're, they're not as good as some of the other opponents on the schedule. But this is, this is a Mountaineers team, man, that I think could beat, you know, Ole Miss, Vanderbilt, Arkansas maybe one other SEC program this season if they were on the schedule. So um, this is a team that's probably going to win nine or ten games. Um, hopefully for, for Gamecock fans, that's not going to be one of those wins at, at Williams-Brice Stadium. And, I mean, I, I can see where you're coming from, though. If if South Carolina goes into this game worried about maybe a, a loss to Appalachian State, obviously that's not where Muschamp wants to be. But I've got this being their sixth wing, um, getting the bowl eligibility with – two games left that, you know, win one of those, all of a sudden seven and five, then you're way past the win total and what most would deem a success for Muschamp in year four. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk about just a second, Brad, before we get into. So going into the Texas A&M game, I've got Carolina at seven and three. You've got the Gamecocks at six and four. I talked about before kind of the bye week when South Carolina was four and one, what the mood would be in Columbia. Gamecocks, let's say again, get the win over App State, even – either record, whether it's 7-3, whether it's 6-4, and four, what do you think the mood is in Columbia at this point just due to the fact of the extremely tough schedule? Again, so many people in the offseason trying to, to pick fun at the Gamecocks, saying they're not going to make a bowl game this season. South Carolina hitting the over. Um, because going into that week of the A&M game, you know, still anything will be possible. I mean, an eight-win season or maybe even a nine-win season you know, will at least still be possible for South Carolina. I mean, do, do you expect the vibe – to be pretty positive going into that Texas A&M and Clemson games just due to maybe over-exceeding expectations, if you will? I think you're going to have some Gamecock fans in mid-November already looking up, you know, bowl itineraries and, and possible destinations in certain cities and hotels and that sort of thing. Um, I think they'd be happy at, at six and four after ten games. Any, any close supporter of the program who watches SEC football and knows the difficulty of this year's schedule um, – based on this rebuild Muschamp's in right now, um, I think everybody would be satisfied with six and four with, like you said, a, a chance to win seven, maybe eight games with a bowl win. Um, considering how, how bad it looked, you know, during that October stretch where, you know, you, you possibly lose three straight games and you're looking at four and four with four games left, not really knowing how you're going to end up. No doubt. So, Brad, like I said, South Carolina, let's get into this one. They travel to College Station to take on the Texas A&M Aggies, a team that the Gamecocks, for whatever reason, just have not been able to figure out since they joined the SEC. Gamecocks 0-5 against the Aggies, one of three five-game losing streaks on the schedule, um, which is just a brutal stat to think about. But, again, anyways, South Carolina traveling to Texas A&M, yeah, a place that's extremely tough to play. Um, this, this, it's hard to believe Brad, almost in a sense that South Carolina has lost five in a row to these guys because they've had so many chances to, whether it's pull the upset or just get the victory overall, especially their last time in college station, where I really think the Gamecocks let that one get away from them. Um, talk about again, your thoughts on this one, Brad, cause I think I, I may be wrong here, but I know a lot of people nationally are high on Texas A&M and the program that Jimbo Fisher is building. How do you see this one playing out? Yeah, I think Texas A&M is one of the more volatile teams 
in the SEC West this season. You know, a a team in my opinion that could go anywhere from seven and five to to ten and two if the ball bounces their way. They they face a brutal schedule too. You know, just like South Carolina, they also play Georgia, Clemson, and Alabama. One of only two teams nationally to to play the you know probably the preseason top three teams in the country. So um, one one positive here for A and M though besides Jimbo, I think you know having this program in the right direction. I think last year's seven to five finish and an eighth win in that bowl game over NC State. I think it showed the program was maybe a little ahead of schedule, uh, more so than we we thought. You know a, after Kevin Sumlin, and I think to to take the next step this season, Kellen Mond needs to be a all-SEC caliber quarterback. I think he has what it takes as well. Um, no disrespect to Jake Bentley, but I think if, if Kellen Mond is South Carolina's quarterback this season, we're talking about a possible 8-4 uh, and four type team, just based on what, what he can do when, you know, plays break down and from, from a freelance standpoint, very good dual threat, had about 500 yards rushing last season, had, had an incredible game against Clemson just like Jake did, um, almost beat the Tigers at home. So um, I think this is a game that's, Probably another toss-up for South Carolina, a, a four-quarter type atmosphere at, at Kyle Field. Um, I've got 34-27 Aggies as my final score, a, another tough-to-stomach loss in, in, a, in a close game. Um, two years ago, Muschamp, I think, had five or six games decided by a touchdown or less, and you're going to see the same thing this season. You know, two years ago, Gamecocks went 9-4 and, and and won most of those games, but um, this season – the, the the competition is a little bit more stiff, and I think the uh, outcomes go in a different direction. Yeah, Brad, I, I think this game, I agree with you on Texas A&M as far as being a volatile team. I agree there are a lot of question marks there with them, a lot of people high on them. And I will tell you, Brad, Kellen Mond is a guy that scares me uh, play, playing against him. I just I, – I don't know what it is as far as – I really like Kellen Mond's game. I agree with you that he's a guy that um, – from what I've seen, he has athleticism. He has that game-breaking type ability. And, I mean, with all due respect to Jake Bentley, I think even more so than Jake Bentley, Kellen Mond showed that ability to really look the, you know, the best team in the country in the face last year, go toe-to-toe with them and not be intimidated in the slightest. I mean, really, you could argue A&M should have won that game if not for a really bad, in my opinion, really bad call on a touchback fumble out of the end zone. If you, I don't know if you remember that one, but – um, yeah, I, this, you know, this, we've talked about in the beginning of the show, Brad, what would be success for this 2019 season? You know, I think that if this, even if the season played out, whether the way I said, or you said it to this point, I think beating A&M even, um, even if you don't beat one of the big three, I think beating an A&M could be kind of a, a game that really makes South Carolina fans again, feel good about the direction of this program, just because it's such a nasty losing streak against a team you had so many opportunities to beat. And really, I mean, you and I both know, Brad, A&M will certainly be a favor going into the, favorite going into this game, no questions asked. So it will be considered an upset, if you will. And while it's not one of the big three, I think South Carolina is definitely going to have the opportunity to sort of make a statement, again, in a hostile environment, go on the road and steal a win over a team you haven't beaten since they joined the SEC. This is a big opportunity. It's going to be one that really separates this South Carolina season from being a an okay, good season. You know, you over, you you exceeded expectation in regards to the win loss over under in Vegas, but making it into a truly promising, great season, at least in the eyes of South Carolina fans, if you can go into College Station and pull this upset, 
I will say, however, I get I do have Texas A&M getting the win. I agree with you, Brad. I've got a twenty-seven to twenty-four ball game again. Another close one. Um, I just think A&M at home will be too much. I think maybe this game won't be quite as close, honestly, as that score says. I think South Carolina might get a late touchdown for a backdoor cover. But this is one, Brad, I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't be surprised if South Carolina were to say, again, this is one of those where I wouldn't be surprised if South Carolina lost a game maybe earlier in the season they were supposed to win, but then beat A&M. Just because, like I said, things – come around, go around, and it's really just hard to fathom South Carolina could have a six-game losing streak to Texas A&M. Again, even while it's more acceptable, acceptable than the Kentucky streak, six straight games, Brad. I mean, that's that that's a lot of games in a row. I mean, you have to think this team can at least at some point break through against the Texas A&M Aggies. I don't think I'm not going to pick for it to be this year, but this is one that I honestly would not be shot at all if South Carolina found a way to pull the upset. And, you know, this is the Gamecocks' new permanent rival from the West, too. You know, they don't, they don't get the luxury of playing a down Arkansas anymore. So, at, at some point, if, it, if the Gamecocks want to get back in the East contention, you know, the, the game every year against A&M has to be a 1-0 for South Carolina. And it just hasn't been the, these last five years. This is one of those games, you know, you talk about one of those wins on the road earlier in the year that you might could flip-flop. You know, if, if Gamecocks lose at Mizzou, maybe they win at A&M. You know, it, it's – it's that kind of scenario. This is a game, too, that this is the most winnable game against a ranked team, in my opinion. Um, A&M might not be ranked on November 16th, but there's a chance uh, based on who they play and, and, you know, if they can get some wins over some decent teams, LSU, Auburn, Mississippi State notably, you know, they, they go 2-1 and one there, they're, they're probably ranked. So um, if, if Muschamp does lose this game against A&M, however, that's going to be, what, 14 consecutive games without a win against top 25 competition with, with Clemson coming to town two weeks later. So um, it, it's a big spot for Muschamp, big spot for the program. And like you said, it, it's really hard to fathom right now that South Carolina's football program has three consecutive, uh, excuse me, three different, you know, five consecutive uh, losses to different teams. Indeed. So uh, something very interesting, Brad, about the schedule this year, South Carolina actually has a bye before they take on the Clemson Tigers in the annual rivalry matchup. I think that's something very interesting that comes into play, you know, with the uh, with the schedule this year, with things shuffling around South Carolina not having their annual sort of cupcake game before the Clemson game. Um, but Gamecocks, let's move into that one. South Carolina taking on Clemson again in the annual rivalry matchup in Williams-Brice Stadium. I fully expect this one. Um, to most, I don't know. I say I expect it to be a night game, but I, you know, we haven't had a noon kickoff at Williams Bryce for this rivalry game in a while, and it seems like this might be the opportunity for it. But when you're Clemson and you're the best team in college football or one of the best, you're probably going to get that night primetime game. But either way, um, I've got the Gamecocks coming in this one seven and four. You've got them coming in six and five, so very similar records. Um, South Carolina, Brad, a little stat for you: the Gamecocks, um, they've lost the last five, obviously, in this series by a average of 23 points per game again how you like you said earlier how the mighty have fallen I don't think anyone would have seen that coming after the 2013 season um but again last year like we mentioned Brad you know a very interesting game in the sense that I don't know that I've ever come into or seen a robbery matchup with Caron and Clemson that and maybe you can shed some light on this as well where it felt so it was so accepted across the Carolina fan base that this was going to be a blowout. I've never come into a rivalry week, even when South Carolina was three and eight coming into the rivalry game in 2015, you felt a sense of hope. I don't think I've come into a game with less hope in a game than I did last year against Clemson at Clemson. The Gamecocks in a 21 point loss 
have you, I think almost exceeded expectations because of the gaudy offensive numbers. Um, simply put, Brad, how important is this one in regards to – because, listen, Bama and Georgia are nice-to-haves as far as, you know, keeping the games close and competitive. I feel like Clemson's a need-to-have. This is one that if you get blown out in – especially at home – it's going to be a real black eye on what you did for the 2019 season because it's going to be the final regular season game. How important do you think this one is for the overall perception of Will Muschamp's program in the 2019 season as a whole? I think if you ask Gamecock fans right now, and, you know, I, I can't speak for all of them, but if they'd rather go 6-6 six and six with a bowl appearance or 5-7, and seven, well, let's go ahead and say 3-9 and nine with a win over Clemson everyone's taking the three and nine. I mean, that's, that's how much th- this game means on the schedule every year. Um, obviously, both, both fan bases hate each other. And, and right now, South Carolina has to go to sleep every night knowing that, you know, Clemson is now, um, and, and it feels strange to say, is now the premier program in college football. You know, just, just five years ago, we're talking about Spurrier winning, you know, one for the thumb in this Palmetto State series, and, and now Clemson, um, has the same stretch. So, and, and, and the games haven't been close either. Clemson has, has been by far uh, had, had superior talent and has proven it on the field. So, um, Clemson coming into Williams Bryce. So, I, obviously, every, every time a Gamecock fan sees that, you know, they, they think inside that, you know, maybe something goes right and, uh, Gamecocks pull the upset. But it, it's a, it's a 44 20 type game for me. Um, that, that's right on the average points per game the last five in this series. I think the line for this one will be somewhere around 20 points. And, and like I said, Clemson and Alabama this season are probably going to run the table by, by double digits uh, every game during the regular season. And this is not one that if I'm a Clemson fan, I'm, I'm particularly worried about. Um, even though Jake had, you know, 510 yards and multiple scores last season, you know, the, the game was, was never in doubt in Death Valley. I think anybody who watched it would, would say that. Uh, Gamecocks were, were plagued by injuries. Hopefully this season, you know, we see a more competitive game with, with both teams, you know, fielding their, their best 22. But um, this will be a, a very tough matchup. I think it's the second hardest game of the season behind Alabama at home and um, not a game I see the Gamecocks winning. Yeah, I think South Carolina, Brad, in this one, they, I think the spread opened Clemson a 24-point favorite, I believe. I'm not sure if it's changed. So you've got Clemson, that being a push as far as the, uh, the spread's concerned. That sounds about right, yep. Yeah, so I, I've got Clemson winning as well. I agree with you last year that while the stats were nice, I agree it was a game that was really never in doubt. Um, I, you know, <laughs> everyone loves to ask about this game, the Carolina-Clemson game. You know, when will we catch Clemson? When we get back to where Clemson is, um, I don't know, you know, Brad, I don't have that answer, but it won't be this year. I think uh, as, as much optimism as I have about a potential, you know, like you said, the aura of Williams-Brice, a magical night at Williams-Brice Stadium where South Carolina finds a way to pull the upset, there's no way in hell I'm going to be picking it. <laughs> I've got Clemson winning this one 38-21. I, I'm kind of with you. I just think right now Clemson has too much talent. They've got too much talent across the board, too much depth. South Carolina is building. Um, I think this, you know, while I'm picking the score again, 38-21, and you're picking it 44-20, I will say, though, this is one that we're going to need to see South Carolina at some point. I mean, you have to think at one of these years, because like I've talked to you before, you know, upsets do happen in college football. At least teams hang close. Teams hang close with teams they're not as good as. So I think 
this is a game where South Carolina eventually, especially for the recruiting trail, is going to have to find a way to have a some sort of performance against Clemson it can hang his hat on. Um, even if it's not I mean, look, in a if, Right. And if, and if ACC teams like Syracuse and NC State can, can play the Tigers competitively, then there, there's no reason why a team loaded with talent like the Gamecocks couldn't do the same, especially in a rivalry atmosphere. Now, now you know, maybe, maybe Clemson doesn't, doesn't get up for Syracuse and NC State as much as they do South Carolina, but this is a game that South Carolina will, will do its best to keep it competitive. And, and like you said, I mean, there's, there's head-to-head recruiting battles all the time between these two uh, Palmetto State-based programs. And uh, right now, you know, Clemson is lapping the competition on the recruiting trail. Muschamp is is doing a good job, all things considered. But man, what a what a win um, would would mean in this series if he's able to beat Clemson this year, finish seven and five, and possibly get to a Florida-based bowl game. That's that's something to watch too. I mean, the Gamecocks going to this game six and five, and they were able to beat Clemson. I mean, you're you're talking about possibly a a Gator Bowl type bid where a Gamecock fan base, man, after they went over the Tigers, that would that would be a, a sellout bowl allotment. No doubt. No, they, they would certainly travel. And, I, I mean, I just – everything you say, I mean, I definitely echo that. I mean, I think it's just so pivotal, this game, for, you know, the, the trajectory of the program, if you will, in the sense, like I said, you don't have to win the game, but just keeping it competitive. I, I mean, I just think at some point, like you mentioned, I mean, Teams have played the Tigers close. I mean, as good as they have been, I mean, for whatever reason, Syracuse knows how to play Clemson close. NC State really should have beaten the Tigers two years ago. I mean, you've eventually got to. And I'm just, you know, Brad, these games, I thought we saw – that was one of the things I thought that I was most happy about. You talked about the way Brent Venables was out coached last year. And really, the this, this rivalry to me, one of the reasons I think it's so streaky, Brad, besides the fact of whoever has the better team wins – is that the mental warfare, the mental edge, I feel like, in this game is a real thing. I, I just – I really feel like that one side seems to get in the head of the other side and ride these winning streaks. I, I mean, that's only really the only way that I can explain it. You know, when Spurrier and the Gamecocks were winning five in a row over Clemson, it was always, at least as a fan perspective watching the games, that you have to feel like it spread to the sidelines as well, where it felt like a situation where – you were waiting for something really good to happen for South Carolina, and you were waiting for something really bad to happen for Clemson, like a turnover. Like it was a mental kind of a mindset, if you will. And now I feel like it's a mental it's a mental warfare in the sense of these games where, I mean, Clemson, because of the, the talent they have, the national championships, the way they've dominated these games, you know, is really coming into these games with 110% confidence. They're coming into this game and approaching it, I hate to say it, as the same as they would approach a um, – you know, a, a Syracuse, NC State, a Duke, like like a lesser opponent almost because of the success and the results they've had. And I just – I think last year, one of my point I'm getting to, Brad, was the first time that I've seen South Carolina since Will Muschamp has been there and in this losing streak at least go toe-to-toe with Clemson mentally, at least in the sense that at least in one aspect of the game, they made Clemson sweat a little bit and made them think, had them confused, obviously, in their secondary, things of that nature. And, again, like you said, the game was definitely not – it was never in doubt. But I need to see more of the same of that this year. I just don't think it'll be, again, Clemson as good as they are. It's not going to be acceptable to see South Carolina come out and just get completely get dominated on their home, on their home turf. You're going to need to see the Gamecocks. And I, I think of blowouts in the big three, um, Brad, I think this one will be the most disappointing just because of – the implications of the game, this game, what's riding on this game, and 
just what this game means to the state and means this South Carolina program. It would be extremely devastating, in my opinion, if Clemson just came out and, and wiped the floor with South Carolina. Yeah, I mean, getting back to the streaks and the uh, mental warfare advantages that, that go into this one. I mean, go back to the 2012 game. Gamecocks had one, I think it was three in a row, heading into Death Valley. And then, you know, their, their all-world quarterback, Connor Shaw, is a late scratch. You know, insert Dylan Thompson, and he wins the game 27-17. to 17. So, and that, that's, you know, the fourth win in that five-year stretch. So, I think that was 2012. Yeah. But, I mean, yep. it, it's just a, um, you know, five to five right now. Over the past decade, the the, the rubber match uh, coming in in November 2019. So uh, Trevor Lawrence, though he's you know it's it, it's hard to believe, and this has probably never happened. I I haven't researched it, but um, it's safe to say that you know the the Gamecocks have never faced a schedule where potentially they're they're facing you know three three top in top five quarterbacks during the same year. Two and Jake Fromm could could easily go you know, one, two, the 2020 draft. And, and by all accounts, you know, Trevor Lawrence is the presumptive number one pick in the 2021 draft. So uh, Travaris Robinson has his work cut out for him this season. Uh, Gamecocks are going to face some elite competition from, you know, all over the SEC and, and college football. So uh, I, I definitely wouldn't want to be Will Muschamp this summer, you know, coming through this schedule trying to pick out the wins because um, you and I have done it for over an hour now and it's – it's very hard to find, you know, six or seven wins on this schedule. Indeed. So, wrapping up, again, that would be the end of the season. Again, you've got Clemson 44-20. I've got the Tigers 38-21, to which would end the season. I've got South Carolina at a 7-5 and record. You've got the Gamecocks at 6-6. Six and six. We've both got South Carolina hitting the over 5.5, though, and getting to a bowl um, in the 2019 season. Again, I, I think both records, Brad, for all accounts, would – would be pretty respectable. I mean, just because of – and I think, you know, I, I, as much as I hate to say it, you know that, Brad, what's going to happen, especially on social media, is that people are going to lean on the schedule as a crutch. And, I, you know, the schedule talk to me is – it is a tough schedule, but I, I get tired of talking about it over and over again because I, I always feel like, hey, everybody's 0-0, everybody's undefeated in the offseason. Let's see how the schedule plays out. I guarantee you somebody that's as good as you think they'll be is not going to be quite as good. Maybe somebody that's not quite as good will be better. Uh, and these things play out. But overall, wrapping up the season and wrapping up these predictions, Brad, if the Gamecocks finish 6-6 six and six or 7-5, and five, from what you said earlier, and I would tend to agree with you, that Will Muschamp cannot be – his tenure at least cannot be judged solely on that 2019 performance. And getting this team – as long as you're sustaining getting to a bowl and getting to the postseason in 2019, you haven't lost ground as a program, you know, saying you beat Kentucky and win the, one, wins, win the games you are supposed to. Now, I think you're exactly right. That, that UK game, to, to me, is, is essential toward, you know, finding some finality 2019 schedule. You, you never want to wipe away a season completely, you know, two months before it starts. But you can pretty much chalk up a – you know, six and six, seven and five type year, unless something goes, you know, crazy bad and Gamecocks have a rash of injuries or, you know, several ranked teams, namely UF and A&M, maybe aren't as good as everybody thinks they are. And the Gamecocks could possibly go eight and four or, or nine and three. So um, I think anything, anything over six wins would probably be an A-plus job for Will Muschamp. I think if, if they hit your seven and five, beat Kentucky, and then, we, you know, one of those seven wins is against a ranked team. Um, I think Will Muschamp deserves uh, a lot of credit for that. And 
and he probably gets extended. But um, all all this preseason hot hot seat buzz from us, champ, it's it's way premature. Um, I wouldn't even entertain that question um, as a, as an analyst until you know November 2020, when we know how this 2019 season has gone, and you know we we know how Ryan Helensky looks in his first season as a starter late in the year. So. Um, at the time of Muschamp's hire, um, you know, I, I don't want to get too far into this because I know it's a season pr- broadcast, but at the time of his hire, um, I thought Ray Tanner made the right decision. Um, heading into year four, I think uh, as far as one being a bad call, ten being a great call, I think we're at about a five and a half right now on, on Muschamp. Um, I think he has a little bit more positive momentum than, than negative, but uh, 2019 is big, and like I said, September and October of – of the year after next, uh, that that'll be that'll be huge uh, in determining you know whether or not Muschamp was a good hire or you know just another guy who you know followed Spurrier. And I agree with you, Brad. I think five and a half is a fair assessment. Like I said, I think it's very uh, fans are very wait and see mode. And again, I I, I think yep. something that's very interesting, Brad, is that you know what honestly, South Carolina with a six and six or even a seven and five record, at those two records. There's nothing about that is – and like you said, you hate to feel like you're just washing or throwing away a season two months before it's here. But at 6-6 six and six or 7-5, and five, unless the Gamecocks find a way to beat one of the big three, especially if they don't beat a ranked opponent again this season, that record is going to do nothing to the, – that, on that meter, I think it will remain a 5.5 or maybe a 6 going into the 2020 season, a season that I think you and I would both agree is really – really can be looked at as this is going to somewhat define the trajectory in the Will Muschamp era. I don't think a 6-6 six and six or 7-5 and five record is going to change anyone's overall opinion on Will Muschamp and his leadership of the Carolina program, whether you like him, dislike him, you feel indifferent. I just don't think that's going to be enough to, um, to sway anyone's opinion, if you will, which, you know, honestly, for this year, when you look at the best case and the worst case, you know, the worst case, I think, being Brad, we probably both agree, South Carolina being a potential four and eight type team, God forbid, maybe even a three and nine. Um, so, really, six and six, seven and five to keep the stability of the program, to keep the momentum you've built in the recruiting trail. Um, you know, I think South Carolina fans right now at this moment with the schedule would, 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 uh, would sign up for six and six or seven and five. Just making a bowl appearance would be, you know, somewhat of a success in 2019 for sure. Well, Brad, Appreciate you taking the time, man. Obviously, it was a blast. Uh, it, it's always fun to talk college football. I, I, I don't think there's a more in-depth Gamecock season preview predictions type podcast or any type of analysis you're going to, uh, to going to hear. Brad, again, appreciate you taking the time. Let everybody know where they can find all the rest of your work because I know, I know you'll have uh, some South Carolina preview type articles or really any national college football articles as well upcoming as we get closer to the 2019 season. Yeah, man, B. Crawford247 on Twitter. Um, I do have an active Facebook page as well that I post content on all the time. But, yeah, my, my job mainly at 24-7 Sports right now is uh, covering, you know, the top five, the top ten teams in the country in, in the playoff hunt. But, you know, I, I follow Gamecock football religiously. I watch every snap uh, every season pretty much my entire life. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what, what this season has until for the Gamecocks. Um, I know it's a very tough schedule. There's several top 15 programs that the Gamecocks probably won't beat, but, um, you know, it's, it's a chance for Will Muschamp to, you know, prove the naysayers wrong and see if his prediction that this team is the best he's had in his tenure uh, comes to fruition. You know, no one, no one knows this team better than Will Muschamp. He sees them every day in practice. And, you know, based on everyone that I've spoke to within and, and close to the program, they're expecting to 
win more than six games as well. So I think there's a reason for optimism right now uh, in Columbia, but we'll certainly know more, you know, after that September game against Bama and maybe at the midseason point once that game in Athens is over with. The toughest schedule in the country, but arguably the schedule that provides the most opportunity in the country as well. Brad, again, appreciate you taking the time. And uh, let's do it again sometime soon for sure. Maybe catch up middle of season or uh, end of season to recap how things have gone. Maybe look back on our predictions and see how we did in 2019. Appreciate it, man. Sounds good, buddy. All right, so that does it for the game-by-game predictions. Really appreciate you guys tuning in. Would love to obviously hear your feedback on all social media, um, everywhere you follow us, everywhere you listen to us. Would love to hear the feedback. Obviously, know there's going to be some disagreement. Know there's going to be some con- uh, discussion, and that's what makes this thing great. Obviously, I have the Gamecocks going 7-5, and five, Brad Crawford at 6-6. Six and six. What I want to do now is jump into your listener questions. I asked once again for your feedback. You guys did not disappoint. Really, really do appreciate that. Let's go ahead and jump into these listener questions. And I want to start with this one actually from Facebook. Don't always get a lot of questions from Facebook, but Adam Purser with a really good uh, kind of multi-series part question here. I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, He first asked, are we losing ground of Virginia Tech in regards to Tavian Feaster? So the state newspaper came out with an article, I I believe, yesterday um, or whenever you listen to this, Wednesday afternoon came out with an article. Clemson transfer running back Tavian Feaster uh, in regards to his update, in regards to his recruiting um, basically saying that he hasn't heard a lot from South Carolina. Virginia Tech obviously stays on top of him. He hasn't heard a lot from the Gamecocks since the beginning of the dead period. I, I will say this, that I believe that South Carolina sits, still sits in good standing with Tavian Feaster. I still believe, I've said from the beginning, that I think the Gamecocks are going to get Tavian Feaster. Um, I know the article definitely sounds concerning a bit, if you will, because South Carolina hasn't been in touch, but I think it's more of a situation where the Gamecocks you know, listen, they've done what they can done. They've told Tavian Feaster, you know, everything they can about how much they need him in the offense, and the ball is kind of in his court at this point. So if you're a Gamecock fan, I wouldn't worry too much. Again, I, I think the Gamecocks are the team to beat to get Tavian Feaster. I've said all along they're going to get him, and I'm not going to change up my tune now. I know obviously that article had some people a little bit worried, but uh, I, I don't know if the Gamecocks are losing ground. I think it's, just, it's, it's, it's a decision that Tavian Feaster is going to have to make on his own, no doubt. Um, he follows it up. Adam says, if so, do you think it's something Coach Brown has seen? He stated he hasn't been contacted much after the dead period, which either means coaches were focused on 2020 Joes or there were some red flags, maybe at the seven-on-seven. Seven. No, I don't think there's any red flag. I mean, unless there's things we don't know. Listen, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. I think we all saw that recruiting this week with the whole Miles Murphy thing unfolding, everyone thinking he was going to South Carolina. He ends up committing to North Carolina. Who knows if that kid's going to flip down the road? I mean, it's all guesswork in recruiting. So something may come out later at a different point that tells us we maybe didn't know everything we thought, but I think right now the Gamecocks are okay. I don't think it's a situation where the coaches have seen something. I, you know, I think Tavian Feaster would probably have already committed if he thought South Carolina wasn't interested in him, any, any, in him anymore because of some red flags or things of that nature. They're not, not going to leave a cliffhanger on a kid like that and have him guessing during his recruiting process. Just not, that's not a good tactic. Um, Adam continues, if we do get that feature back, which can pick up three to four yards consistently on first down, this keeping the defense honest and opening up the mid-range passes five to eight yards, Bentley could have a phenomenal season. Like what they were predicting for Garcia in his senior year, what do you think? I mean, listen, I said as soon as the 2018 season, as soon as the Belk Bowl was over, that South Carolina's number one priority as a team was to find a true number one running back. I mean, that's just, that's just something this offense has been missing since 2014 when Mike Davis left campus. Um, so, obviously, I think any semblance of a running game, any consistent type of running game is only going to help Jake Bentley. Now, what type of season is that going to lead to Jake Bentley having? Um, 
I think that would be the million-dollar question because we've seen so many different sides of Jake Bentley. We've seen the good Jake Bentley. We've seen the bad Jake Bentley. So I don't know. I'm not going to be – you know, I'm not willing to say that, oh, if South Carolina gets Tavian Feaster, Jake Bentley is automatically going to be a Heisman candidate. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not going out on a limb and saying something like that, but it's certainly going to help Jake Bentley and this entire South Carolina offense if the Gamecocks have someone that can get them those tough, like you mentioned, three, four yards, can get it consistently, can be a guy that – you know, is dependable on third and short, fourth and short, and that can move the chains for you. It's obviously going to be huge. Um, he continues, the season hinges on the running offense, running back and offensive line play, the depth of defensive talent. If we can manage the games on offense and keep the defense to a respectable snap count, we could definitely have an 8-4 and four or 9-3 and three type season. What say you? Um, you know, obviously, I've already got said I've got South Carolina going 7-5, and five, and that's my official prediction. But, I mean, listen, yeah, if the Gamecocks can find a really good running game – I. I feel good about the offensive line. I think the offensive line will be solid. But, yeah, if they can find a good, stable running back and Jake Bentley can show improvement and, you know, be even more improved in his senior season, obviously that's going to be big for the offense. Then just staying healthy on defense, which I think you guys probably heard me. I'm really excited about the South Carolina Gamecocks defense this year just from an athleticism standpoint. I mean, I could cert listen, I could certainly see South Carolina going 8-4, and four, if nothing else. I could see them going 8-4 and four with an upset win or a couple of upset wins. I think 9-3 and three, is where you really start to stretch it. I think the only way that nine and three happens is if a couple of teams on South Carolina's schedule have really, really disappointing seasons. I'm looking at Texas A&M. I'm looking at, you know, Florida. Uh, it's just going to take a couple of wins that maybe we are not seeing in the preseason. But it's certainly possible. So it'll be very interesting to watch. Um, Adam, really do appreciate you leaving the questions as always. Uh, let's go to Instagram. Chase underscore Witten asked, down by three, two minutes to go. What Gamecock quarterback are you taking to lead the game-winning drive? Very, very good question. This is a very good question because I feel like there are, there are a lot of good answers here. I, I mean, the, obvious, the most obvious answer is Connor Shaw. Uh, th that's going to be the most obvious. That's going to be the one that everyone's going to pick. They're going to go to Connor Shaw. I mean, and it's not a bad answer. The dude is a winner. He's a gamer. He's a guy that you just feel confident putting – I mean, look what he did against Missouri 2013 – He's had these moments before. He's done it before. I would probably have to say Connor Shaw as well. I mean, again, it's a guy that has proven it to you and done it time and time again. Um, you know, just because I got love for the guy, though, he's my guy. I I'll say Steven Garcia is definitely high on my list as well. A guy that, again, is going to sacrifice life and limb to get you the winning score. Not even a question. Will it, will it always happen? Maybe not, but a guy that literally will sacrifice you life and limb to get the game-winning score. But very, very good question, Chase. I feel like a good question to spark up some debate. Um, Obi-Wan Kanoa, if we did an SEC versus Big 12 challenge for football similar to basketball, who plays who? Who does USC get first? I I'll say this. I saw this question today and appreciate the question. I, I don't know who they would play first. I don't know who the draw would be. But I'll answer it this way. Who would I like to see South Carolina play if they ever went to an SEC Big 12 Challenge in football, which I think would be an awesome idea? You know, obviously playing the schools like I think Texas would be an awesome – like a, these are home and homes is what I'm thinking. Texas would be an awesome matchup. Um, Oklahoma State would be an awesome matchup. Oklahoma – you know, the bigger Big 12 schools. But I think from a winnable game standpoint, like a quality matchup plus it's a very winnable game, I'd like to see – I'd like to see South Carolina play like Iowa State. Uh, West Virginia, I think, would be a really, really cool matchup as well. Um, Baylor, I think, would be a cool matchup. Um, those are the ones that come kind of jump out to me. So, 
you know, it'd be awesome to play Kansas because, you know, you beat their butt. But, <laughs> you know, you just beat their ass every time. So, no, I, I think there are a lot of different things. I, I hope that's something that happens. I think it'd be really cool to have that on the schedule. Um, John underscore Wilgus underscore Ivy. People saying South Carolina will be a bad football team this fall. You need to join the team from the upstate with the middle finger emoji. If you guys didn't see, we dropped uh, – an article today, uh, good, you know, one of our writers, Noah Fathea, dropped an awesome article that's done really well uh, as far as just that there's a kind of a negative narrative going on that South Carolina is going to be a bad football team this year. And, I, you know, I, I for one, agree with his, his sentiment that I don't, I don't see it. But, uh, John, appreciate you, uh, appreciate you reaching out on that, obviously. That's awesome. Um, Real Tim Cox, how do you feel about the linebacker group slash depth that we have? It's definitely an area of concern. I mean, listen, it's still a position of need for South Carolina. I mean, you have T.J. Brunson, who was announced he's going to SEC Media Days next week. But he's going to be your leader there. I mean, you need Sherrod Green to step up and have a really big year. You need a guy like Ernest Jones to kind of fill in and have a big year. You need a guy like Danny Fennell to continue to be solid for you. You need a guy like Rosendo Lewis, who was, you know, touted as, as this hard hitter, as this guy that was going to fill in and kind of be the next hard hit on, hitter in the middle for Carolina. You need him to have a good year. You need some young guys to fill in. So it, that position to me on the game, that's the most work-in-progress position on the defense for the Gamecocks. It's still very much a work-in-progress for South Carolina. Um, John underscore Wilgus again. Any takeaways from the state article on Feaster? Should we be concerned? Again, sorry that Adams kind of stole your thunder there, John. But, uh, you know, I mean, concerned? I mean, I think we're all anxious. I, I think it's perfectly normal to be anxious, but I'm not concerned. I, I just – Dude, I'll tell you this, guys. The Miles Murphy thing and different things is kind of the reason. I, again, you've heard me say many times on the show, I'm not a recruiting diehard by any stretch of the imagination. I think that's almost like blasphemous saying that because I, you know, I run a South Carolina Gamecocks website and everybody thinks you should be like all in on recruiting all the time. And I know recruiting stuff does really well, but it's so unpredictable. Nobody really truly knows what's going on in these kids' heads, what they're thinking about the decision, stuff like that. And so I don't think you should be concerned. I mean, listen, I've heard good things and feel good about Feaster's recruitment. I mean, it, they, you know, I, I even talked to Will Muschamp about it when I had a conversation with him a couple months ago. And he, he basically told me that, you know, nothing, there's no update and there won't be an update until he graduates. I, I think it's just kind of from that. They've done their recruiting on him. I, I don't think it's a scenario. I understand Virginia Tech's been in, in contact with him every day, but does South Carolina really need to stay in contact with him every single day? They've made it clear they need him, and he's a need for them. I, and what else can they say to the kid? So, I, I don't know. I still think Carolina gets Feaster, but it, it is kind of an interesting – kind of sort of the way it's unfolding is very interesting. Um, Jack Harrington, 4124, do you think App State is a trap game? Why or why not? That's a great question, Jack. And if you just listen to our, our predictions, you know my prediction. I think South Carolina is going to get a big win over App State. Do I think it's a trap game? I, I'll tell you this. Like, in the sense of a trap game – I don't, and I'll tell you why. I, I don't think the Gamecocks – the only way it could be considered a trap game is if South Carolina was overlooking App State in any way, shape, or form. There's not a chance – the Gamecocks football program is not at the point to where it's going to overlook Appalachian State. It's going to be reminded all, all week long of the upsets and the non-conference upsets and what App State has done to other D1 teams, Power 5 teams, stuff like that. I just – you know, I think it may be close early, maybe even close at halftime, but – South Carolina, bottom line, has got much more talented athletes across the board. I don't care what anybody else says. They've got much more talented athletes across the board. And, listen, if we're, if we're sitting here seriously worried about South Carolina, the South Carolina Gamecocks, this program, 
losing to Appalachian State, we have much bigger issues than we thought in year four of the Will Muschamp era. So I, I just – listen, is it an intriguing game? Is it an interesting game? Yes, but I, I don't see it as a trap game, and I don't think I'll even see it as a – I don't see it as a close game either. I think South Carolina will win by three or more touchdowns. You, you can go ahead and mark that down. Go ahead and bookmark me on that. I think Carolina wins that one by at least three touchdowns. So um, do not see it as a trap game. So other than that, um, appreciate all the listener questions, guys. Uh, some other housekeeping notes. If you haven't seen, we dropped an awesome T-shirt um, yesterday, the All In on Osterine T-shirt, which is a fantastic gag gift for one of your Clemson fan buddies. Or if you just want to rock it around like I'm going to do so, just awesome. I mean, the best – the best college football program that legal drugs can produce. It's, it's just a fantastic thing. So go check out the, uh, the All In on Osterine t-shirt on, on our online store. You can go to the spursupshow.com and click on the store tab. It'll pull everything up. Got a lot of exciting stuff happening there. All right, got a fantastic interview to get into. Uh, former Gamecocks offensive lineman, one of only four consensus All-Americans to play at South Carolina, was on the 1984 Black Magic squad. Um, was obviously an All-American that year again, one of only four consensus All-Americans. Just a guy, just a phenomenal conversation. He was also a professional wrestler known as the Trooper and the Patriot. Stuff that is just legendary, man. I, I, it's, it's, it's so cool to get these guys from these different eras and talk to them about their stories. And these are stories really, truly that have never been heard on air or anything because – you know, there wasn't media like back in the day how there is now on, you know, YouTube and all video and stuff. We don't have all that. So, Del Wilkes, an absolutely phenomenal human being, a phenomenal guy, was a phenomenal football player and is the first ever offensive lineman that we've had on the show, first off, but will probably be the first and only former wrestler or wrestler period that we've had on the show. Awesome, awesome stuff. Um, please be sure to stay tuned for that. It's brought to you by our friends over again at SeatGeek. SeatGeek, the best ticket buying app by far, the only ticket buying app I use. Please go download SeatGeek. You go to SeatGeek.com, use the promo code SPURSUP. You're going to save $10 off your first purchase. Guys, it's getting to that point. We've got to start buying our football tickets. We've got to start buying our football tickets. Season's getting here. We're almost to a month away. Um, it's really exciting time. We've got to get our Carolina Gamecocks football tickets. Also, they've got tickets to anything and everything else you need from pro sporting events, college concerts comedy club events you name it really anything and everything you need tickets to they've got it they've got a ticket rating system which does all the work for you really I mean it rates the tickets you know the type of deal you're getting you know if you're paying a little bit too much you know if you're getting a steal on the ticket so again it does all the work for you and it really puts your mind at ease before you click that buy button so again do me the favor go download the SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com when you're getting your tickets use the promo code spurs up that's s-p-r-s-u-p to save $10 off your first purchase. All right, enjoy this interview with former Gamecocks offensive lineman and professional wrestler, Del Wilkes. All right, joining us today on the Spurs Up show is a man that played for the Gamecocks from 1980 to 1981 and then 1983 to 1984. He's one of only four consensus All-Americans from the University of South Carolina, part of an offensive line in 1984 specifically that helped set school records for touchdowns, points, and total offense. After his playing days, he was also a professional wrestler from 1988 to 2000, known as both the Trooper in his early years and the Patriot, more well-known to people who watched wrestling. Um, I'm really, really pleased and excited to welcome the show former Gamecocks offensive lineman and professional wrestler Del Wilkes. Del, really appreciate you taking the time, man. It, it's just a pleasure to have you on. Well, I appreciate you inviting me on the show. Uh, looking forward to it. If no doubt. So, Del, like I mentioned, you know, off air, there's a lot to get to 
when it comes to you, it's funny. I thought about reading the opening intro and the uh, the traditional kind of wrestling kind of uh, put the flair for dramatics on it, but I resisted. But I, w- I want to start with you from the beginning. We're going to keep it mostly South Carolina, and then we'll obviously we'll get to your wrestling career because I'm very intrigued by that. But uh, you're a local kid. I believe you're for, you were from uh, Irmo, South Carolina, obviously recruited by Jim Carlin and his staff in the early 80s. Um, very highly regarded prospect on the offensive line, but just talk about your recruitment and why you eventually chose to come to South Carolina. Well, I, I lived here. Uh, I'm from Columbia, like you said, and we lived here until 1973. And in 73, my dad moved our family to Georgia. He worked in a ministry there for five years. And when we moved, we lived on the other side of the airport. So had we never moved, I would have gone to airport high school. But we were gone those five years, and when we came back, we actually moved back to Columbia, but in the Irmo area. So I ended up going to Irmo High School my junior and senior year. The recruiting process for me actually started in the ninth grade when I was at Calhoun High School in Calhoun, Georgia. Uh, I was in class one day, and uh, uh, the, uh, the lady in the office came over the intercom system and said that I needed to report to the football office that uh, the head coach needed to see me. Of course, naturally, I think I'm in trouble, but but I get to the football office, and our head coach, Buzzy McMillan, introduces me to a guy named um, Clyde Wren, who was uh, working at Clemson at the time. And, of course, all Carolina fans know who Clyde is and how much he's contributed to our program here. But anyway, Clyde was with Clemson at the time. And so Clemson started recruiting me in, in the ninth grade. And then after that came other schools, South Carolina, Georgia, Georgia Tech, and many other schools in the southeast. But we came back to South Carolina in 1978, and my junior and senior year, I went to Irmo. And then that's when the recruiting process really picked up and really become pretty intense and pretty heavy. But for me, all along, I was going to go to school in-state. Originally, I committed to go to Clemson. Danny Ford was the head coach there, and I thought a lot of Coach Ford still do. Uh, I've seen Coach Ford uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years. And uh, Jimmy Laycock, who later became the head coach at William and Mary, was the guy that was actually recruiting me for Clemson. And I fell in love with the place when I took my official visit up there. So um, I shook hands one Sunday morning with Coach Ford and Coach Laycock after an official visit and committed to go. And uh, literally uh, within a couple of weeks, Jim Carlin had contacted me and got a hold of me and talked me out of it. And uh, I'm glad he did. I never regretted it. I, I grew up a Gamecock fan, was raised by a Gamecock family, and uh, never regretted one second being a Gamecock. That's awesome. So, it, the it sounds like, like you said, you were definitely on the fence almost about to go to Clemson, but you don't. You go to South Carolina. You get on campus. I know for you, you know, Dell. just looking back at your career, really when you started to shine was really the 83 and then obviously the 84 season when all the accolades started to come. But I want to go back to – to your freshman year, obviously, 1980, you play with a guy that's obviously one of the most legendary Gamecocks of all time in George Rogers, Heisman Trophy winner, the only one from the state of South Carolina, not just from USC, but the state of South Carolina, I might add. Um, talk about just getting – I'll start off first. Talk about just getting on campus a, as a freshman. You know, what was the adjustment like for you? Obviously, again, being a local kid, you said you grew up a Gamecock. I know it had to be sort of kind of like a dream come true moment, but what was the adjustment like going from the high school game to the college game? It's the biggest adjustment a football player will ever make going from high school to college. That's a bigger adjustment than going from college to pro. There's no doubt about it. I, uh, I was an extremely good high school football player uh, at Irmo, recruited by a lot of schools, an all-state football player. 
Uh, and when I get to Carolina and camp opens, for the first three days, it was just the incoming freshmen that were uh, a part of those first three days of practice. Then the upperclassmen came in, and that's when business picked up. And I was overwhelmed. I remember calling my dad one night after a practice, and, man, I've gone against Emmanuel Weaver and Andrew Province, and these guys are kicking my tail. And I told my dad, I said, listen, I said, don't be surprised. If any day now I end up back at the house, he said, what do you mean? I said, I promise you, these coaches are going to realize they've made a mistake and I don't belong here. I said, this is overwhelming. I said, these are grown men I'm playing against. And I said, I think honestly, they're going to realize they've just made a huge mistake in recruiting me and giving me a scholarship. And I'm convinced that they're probably going to tell me, I just need to pack up and go home. But that didn't happen. And I stuck it out and, and, you know, the, the more I practiced and the more I participated, and I'm thankful that I got to practice against those uh, guys like Andrew and Emmanuel Weaver and Ricky Haygood and Phil Ellis. Those guys just made me a better football player. But originally it was it was overwhelming, and I, I felt like I was in way over my head. But uh, eventually was able to adapt and, and become a better football player. No doubt. So, Dale, talk about your, your relationships uh, or your relationship, your first interactions with uh, the former head coach, Jim Carlin. Obviously a guy that, uh, you know, I, I wasn't able to, you know, see or don't really know a whole lot about. So I'm just curious to kind of get your takes on that. What was Jim Carlin like as a head coach for the Gamecocks? Well, I, I ended up being a Gamecock because of Jim Carlin. Uh, that's the reason I uh, decided not to go to Clemson and come here. I uh, had a great relationship with Coach Carlin. Uh, and even after my playing days, it became even a better relationship. He literally became like a father figure to me. But I like Coach Carlin's straightforward approach. Uh, a lot of people were put off by that. Coach Carlin was very blunt. He could be abrasive. Uh, but he was straightforward in his approach. And he told you exactly how he felt. There was no gray area with Jim Carlin. But he was a good football coach. He was a great recruiter. He was a very loyal guy. And um, – that's the reason I ended up here, and um, I um, thought the world of him. And like I said, our relationship, even after I played, and I went through some difficult times after my wrestling career was finished, and the coach called him was right there. I mean, right beside me every step of the way. So um, a good man, and the one that I'm very, very grateful that uh, was a part of my life. That's awesome. Well, Dell, I don't want to get off the, the 1980 season without, without obviously asking you about George Rogers. You guys actually had a really good year that year as well, went eight and four. I know, you know, really George was the, 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 the main guy who shined. I mean, why not? I mean, he had over 5,000 rushing yards in his career, had his number retired, won the Heisman Trophy. But as someone, again, that didn't get to watch George Rogers, you know, week after week, wasn't, you know, to be honest, wasn't, wasn't around during that time. Just explain to people and explain to me even just – what it was like being with George Rogers, playing for George Rogers, blocking for George Rogers, and what it was like to just see him run every single week. Well, still to this day, the greatest football player I've ever been around. And, uh, you know, and that includes my whole time at Carolina, and I had the opportunity to be in a couple of NFL camps, but still the greatest football player I've ever been associated with. And it's funny, I was talking to somebody the other day that Gamecock fans now, they see George at the stadium, they see him before games, and they take pictures of that Heisman Trophy, and they see a guy that's 60 years old and he's a little heavier than he used to be. And a lot of them don't remember the football player because they were born after that. But they need to go back and go to YouTube and just check out George Rogers. He was a flat-out stud. 
Uh, the guy was an amazing football player. And he was more an amazing as a, as a teammate. He was more amazing than he was as a football player. He was a guy that never, ever uh, made it about him. He never wanted all that attention. He tried to shift the attention to his offensive line, his teammates. Uh, and um, guys like that make you want to play for them and make you want to go out and block for them. And, and you want to see them succeed because of that kind of an attitude, that kind of a teammate that he was. But uh, just a stud as a running back. And uh, it was amazing to, to come in my freshman year and be a part of that and just to watch him do the things that he was doing, have the success that he had. I still think to this day one of the biggest underrated teams in Gamecock football history is that 1980 team. Uh, one of the best offensive lines in Gamecock history is that 80 offensive line. Now, I think the 84 offensive line is the best ever, but that 80 team and that 84 offensive line, I think, uh, are just you know greatly, greatly underappreciated. We, um, we went to Michigan and beat those guys on the road. We went to Southern Cal, had a heck of a game out there, I think, played those guys within a touchdown. Uh, we had the big upset at Clemson where they beat the britches, I mean, beat, just beat the brakes off of us on a very bad day. And then we go to the Gator Bowl, and we lose to the best college football team I've ever seen, that 1980 Pittsburgh team. And as a matter of fact, to sort of verify my opinion on that Pittsburgh team that year, uh, as Bobby Bowden was approaching retirement and they were reflecting back on his career, he said the best football team that he ever coached against was that 1980 Pitt team with all those guys, I think three or four guys that are now in the NFL Hall of Fame off that team. So we lost to some good teams that year. Um, and uh, I, I do really think an underrated team. But it was a great way to start my college career to be a teammate with a Heisman Trophy winner. Without a doubt. So I, I want to jump ahead a little bit, Dell, because the following season, 1981, South Carolina goes six and six. Um, your career, though, took a little bit of a turn, um, which I don't want to skip over that 81 season without talking about the South Carolina uh, went on the road that year, beat number three ranked North Carolina, which I think was the highest ranked opponent win, especially I think it may still be the highest ranked win on the road. Um, Carolina won that one 31 to 13. But your career, obviously, your personal career took a turn where you, uh, you know, Jim Carlin, um, I forget whether you can correct me if I'm wrong, whether he was let go or uh, decided to leave, but Richard Bell hired his head coach the 1982 season, and you decide to quit football. You don't play the 1982 season. Um, talk about just, you know, what went, in the, what went into that decision for you? Why would you make the decision to quit football and sit out 1982? Well, he, uh, Coach Carlin was let go, and it had nothing to do with performance on the field. Uh, he took a pretty young team in 1981 and went six and six and was coming off an eight four year where he had a Heisman Trophy winner. But there was just a, a, a bitter relationship there with him and James Holderman, who was the president of the university at the time. And uh, Holderman made sure to fire him while he was out of town. It was just done in a cowardly way. And and then had the gall. And this makes this is obvious that it wasn't about what was going on with the football team when you fire the head coach but yet keep the entire staff intact and move his defensive coordinator up to the head coaching spot. And uh, it just did not sit well with me. It just was very disappointing. Like I said before, Jim Carlin was really the biggest reason I went to Carolina. And now he's been booted to the curb, but yet the entire staff stays. And uh, I don't know, it just left a bitter taste in my mouth. I was very disappointed, very discouraged, very, I don't know, disillusioned. I just didn't want any part 
of that football team. So I did not play the 82 season. I, I went to several games and set up in the stands and watched, and it was a miserable season. Uh, they lost to Furman at homecoming that year. And um, I think a lot of Coach Bell, Richard Bell, like Coach Bell was a guy that recruited me. And it was nothing personal against him, but uh, I just didn't want to be a part of that 82 team, and, and I wasn't. What did you do during that 82 season? Was there any football training going on? Were you, I mean, did you kind of know what was next? I mean, or you were just kind of just kind of just waiting to see what happened? I had no clue what was next. I got a full-time job and worked. And uh, my intentions were to try to save up enough money to get back into school. And, uh, but I had no clue what the future held for me. I, I, I never, ever in my wildest dreams would have thought that I would have been back at the University of South Carolina playing football again. But when Coach Bell was let go, um, I got a call one day. Joe Morrison is named the head coach. And just a few weeks after he got the job, Bruce, uh, Dr. John Moore, who was one of our associate athletic directors, uh, contacted me and said, look, man, said, uh, I know you've heard we've got a new coach in town and uh, he wants to talk with you and wants to meet with you to see if you'd be interested in coming back. And so I agreed to meet to meet with Coach uh, Morrison. So we set up a date and a place to meet, and we did. And um, it was a good meeting. And uh, he never one time asked me why I left. All he wanted to know was what I like to be a part of the team and to give him a chance as a head coach and to give his staff a chance. And I said, absolutely, Coach, I'd love to. And uh, that was all it took. So, yeah, I was going to say, obviously, the thing that changed everything for you was Joe Morrison, the legendary Joe Morrison being hired at South Carolina. Um, and he took over, obviously, the 1983 season and beyond. But it, it sounds like, obviously, the first impressions were, you know, really good with him. I mean, what, what else was it with Joe Morrison that, I mean, you can, you know, again, for a Gamecock fan that wasn't fortunate enough to watch him, you know, lead the Gamecocks and coach South Carolina. I mean, what are some of the things, what, what were your impressions of Joe Morrison? Obviously not just getting you to, um, you know, to, I say, come out of retirement, but come back and to play football and also the success he led South Carolina to. I mean, I, I guess it, to, to you, I, I guess it sounds like it came to no surprise that he led South Carolina to such great heights. No, it didn't. And I tell you that, that very first meeting I had with him told me that he was a different kind of guy. Um, Coach Carlin was a straight-laced, no-nonsense kind of guy, and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But my first meeting with Joe didn't start off very good, or at least I thought it wasn't going to start off very good. We were supposed to meet at 12 o'clock at a uh, little sandwich shop downtown near the campus. And um, 5 to 12, there's no Joe. 12 o'clock, there's no Joe. 5 after, there's no Joe. And this is way before cell phones, and it's getting close to 10 after, and there's no Joe, and I'm thinking, wow, this guy really wants me back. He's, he's going to no-show me. Evidently, somebody's gotten in his ear and said, you don't want that Wilkes kid on the team. But eventually, he come walking in, and he apologized. He stuck his hand out, introduced himself, and he said, I'm sorry that I'm late. He said, but as you very well know, uh, I've just put together my coaching staff. We've not been on the job that long. And he said, all of the coaches are in town now, but we've yet to bring our families in town. He said, so all of the coaches got together last night. We played some poker. And he said, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, I had a little bit too much to drink, and I'm a little hungover. <laughs> but let's sit down and talk. And I just thought, wow, this is a different kind of guy. And uh, as an 18-year-old kid, 19-year-old kid, you know, that I don't know. It just, it just wasn't what I expected to hear from a head coach. But he was a player's coach. He was a guy that had 
gone straight from the NFL after he left the NFL in 1972. He was never an assistant coach for a single day. He became a head coach right out of the shoot at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And uh, he just related to players. It was um, Coach Morrison didn't have a lot of rules. The few that he had, you better follow them. But he was a player's coach. He could just relate to players. He wasn't a screamer. He wasn't a yeller. He wasn't an in-your-face kind of guy. But yet he could motivate the snot out of you. Uh, because you knew where he was coming from in the background that he had. I, uh, I was a football fanatic as a kid. And I knew exactly who Joe Morrison was. I mean, I'd, I'd read about him. I'd heard about him. I knew he was a Giants great. And uh, so he just, I don't know, he was just the kind of guy you want to play for. And uh, and it just affected the whole team. And um, we knew right away that with that staff that he had, that we had a chance if, you know, if we could stay healthy, that we could eventually put something good together. And uh, we saw bits and pieces of it in 83 the potential that we could have but as we all know it really came together in 84. Yeah I was gonna say you know one thing I'm really curious about because we already talked about the transition from high school football to college football I mean was there a transition for you once again when you you know going from taking a year off to getting back out there and strapping the pads on because I, I mean I would just imagine you take you know nowadays you wouldn't even fathom somebody wouldn't even fathom taking a year off and then jumping back in but obviously you did that I mean was there any was there any transition or any tough phase going from, you know, sitting out to getting back on the practice field and back on the field in general? Well, you know, the, the, the biggest thing for me, I think the biggest thing I had to overcome or the biggest issue that concerned me was the accept, acceptance of my teammates back into the fold. Because, you know, once I had that meeting with Joe and he, he said, look, we'll welcome you back, you know, your own scholarship, just come back and be a part of this team. Then I had to come back and face those same guys that I had walked out on and, and left. And I was concerned, you know, are they going to accept me back in? Am I going to get the cold shoulder treatment? What's going to happen here, you know? And uh, they just like I never left. And uh, teammates are that way, you know. Uh, guys that you've played with, they're that way. They just welcome you back. And if you can be a part of the team and help, they don't care why you left or how long you were gone for but, yeah, it was because it was tough physically getting back into the grind of it and getting back into football shape and weight room shape because I did nothing uh, from that standpoint the year that I set out. I, uh, I didn't train. I didn't lift. I partied a lot and uh, worked a lot. But uh, So, yeah, it was, uh, it was an adjustment physically, uh, mentally. Uh, but the, the best thing for me was just my teammates welcoming, welcoming me back with open arms and never questioning me about one thing. That's awesome. So, Dill, I want to switch gears just a little bit because I think it's interesting that you were at South Carolina during the time that one of the, you know, one of the most pre prestigious traditions at South Carolina, the 2001 Space Odyssey entrance was kind of began. Um, you know, obviously, I, I think I read the story. It was Tommy Suggs that took the idea using the song to bring the team on the field. He brought it to Jim Carlin in 1981. And I think Carlin had the band play it. They did it for a couple of games during 1981 after Carlin you know, was let go. The, the AD, Bob Markham, liked the idea, and they introduced it, um, I believe, in 1983. They said they wanted to wait until uh, Williams-Brice Williams -Brice Stadium's new sound system was installed. So, rolled it out in 1983 for Joe Morrison's first year, and it was played over the loudspeakers for the first home game, and it's obviously been a South Carolina Gamecocks tradition, you know, ever since. I mean, I just, again, I think it's interesting that you were there at South Carolina during that time. Just kind of talk about 
the uh, the rolling out of the 2001 entrance, if you will, and did you guys ever think it would turn into, you know, I guess what it is now today being, you know, truly a tradition and staple of Gamecock football? No, I didn't. I, I was excited about it when we found out that that was going to be our entrance music. I uh, And I know Tommy got it from going to an Elvis Presley concert. I'm pretty sure that's where he heard it. And uh, I'm a huge Elvis Presley fan, so I was familiar with the song and know that Elvis used it and uh, and incorporated it into his concert. So we were excited about it. It's, it's, let me tell you, if that can't pump you up, then you need to be embalmed. Uh, and, and waiting to run out on the field and you're hearing that song build up and you're getting to the, you know, the crescendo of that and, and, and those fans are starting to get louder and louder and you can literally just feel the earth shake as they're, you know, kicking their feet and, and, and clapping their hands and screaming and yelling. But now I'd had no clue, and I don't think any of us would have, that it would have lasted this long because obviously it's gone through several coaching changes and several different athletic directors and several different philosophies, but that's been the one constant. And I think it gives us a uniqueness about our entrance, um, uh, you know, uh, prior to a football game, and it's something that Carolina fans have, come to love and expect and cherish and it does it just just talking about it just gives you chill bumps man it's a wonderful way to to make an entrance on that field without a doubt so I, I want to move obviously into the 1984 season Dell, the black magic season if you will I'll ask you first personally because I'm going to get to the accolades in just a second but I mean did you ever imagine that especially in 1982 after you had you know quit football and you didn't know what your future held I mean, did you ever expect that you would have the type of year or one, that the team would have the type of year and that two, you would have the type of year um, that led you guys to so much success for you personally and the team as well? Never. Would have never imagined it in my wildest dreams. Would have never expected it. Um, like I said earlier, we, we had some glimpses of how good we could be during that 83 season. Uh, we went down to Florida State and played those guys close and ended up losing. And really the only big stinker I think we had was when Notre Dame came to town uh, in 83 and it was played in a rainstorm and they beat the brakes off of us. But, you know, we played Clemson pretty tough um, that year. And and you could see that we had a chance. And and I think everybody sensed it because the guys all stayed in town and went to summer school uh, the summer before the 84 season. Now that wasn't a big deal for me. It wasn't a sacrifice for me. I lived in Columbia, but just about everybody stayed in town and went to summer school so we could be together, so we could work out together, we could run together, we could train together. Uh, and, and it just, you could just see this thing starting to gel and come together. And then we get into spring ball and the team's getting more, it's becoming a more cohesive unit. The offense is starting to gel because you got to think. The, the offense, the defense, we had been through several, not only head coaches, but coordinators. We didn't, I mean, you couldn't get used to anything. It was going to be a coaching change, a philosophy change. But now we're getting ready to have our second year under the same group of coaches. And, and then we get into camp. And uh, there was just definitely an intensity in camp, uh, preseason camp, that I'd never experienced there. And again, you could just tell that guys felt like, man, if we can, if we can stay healthy and if we can come together and if we can play like we feel we're capable of playing. Now, nobody imagined that we would have the kind of year that we had, but we certainly felt like we could have a very good year. 
but it turned into something beyond, I think, any of our wildest dreams. For sure. So, Dell, again, switching uh, switching gears just a little bit. Obviously, a great offensive lineman that you were. I think it's funny today, you know, you hear, I mean, myself included, but you hear people talk football, you hear people try to analyze the game and break down football, more so in the media and things of that nature. And, you know, I feel like when they talk offensive line, it's it's a lot of guesswork, you know, like I feel like offensive line's a position. I know it was a little bit different back then because the offenses have changed so much and, you know, the schemes have changed so much. But I feel like offensive line is a position that, number one, we obviously know it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. But number two, it's a position that if you have not played it, you really don't understand all the ins and outs and nuances. And it's a much more complex thing and much more difficult thing to be, you know, when somebody's an exceptional offensive lineman. It's, it's, it should be much more recognized, I guess you could say, than it is currently. I mean, is there any merit to what I'm saying? Because I, it's funny. Again, I feel like people try to break down offensive line, but 99.9% of us have no clue what we're talking about. No, I would agree 100% with you. I think it's a very good assessment. And an offensive line is – to have a successful offensive line, first of all, there's got to be chemistry there and, and cohesiveness. And that comes with experience. And that offensive line in 84 had played together in 83. So we had a year under our belt together for that 83 season. We had had spring ball prior to the 83 season, camp prior to the 83 season, the 83 season itself our workouts in the offseason, again, spring ball, again, camp prior to the 84 season. So we had developed a gel and a bond, and it was a very close group. I'll tell you, whether at high school, college, and the two short camps I was in in the NFL, the offensive line is always the closest group. Those five starters in 83 and 84, we were always together. I mean, always. And my room seemed to be the place where everybody would gather and would watch film and break down film and play cards and watch TV. And it was just we were always together doing something together. And I think that's important for an offensive line because I feel like more so than any other group on the field, that kind of closeness and bond is more important with that group maybe than any other because you do play in anonymity. Uh, There's really outside of your parents, there's nobody in that stadium watching you and keeping an eye on you. They're watching where the football goes and who has it in their hands and what they're doing with it. So we, we lean on each other and we count on each other. And also, too, with an offensive line, making calls prior to the snap as a defense shifts and moves and in and out of gaps and things like that, it's so important that we're all on the same page and that we, we're, we're getting these calls and making these calls. So all that together just brings a closeness to that group. And uh, we had a very, very close group that worked very hard. And uh, like I said, I I still – I know I'm biased, but I still think it's the greatest offensive line, that 84 group that's ever played. You look at the numbers that we had as an offense, and Mike and our quarterbacks, Holt and Mitchell, they were great at throwing the ball. They were efficient. They did a good job of it. Uh, But most of that offense came from running the ball. And uh, we could just flat out move people off the football and create running lanes and create uh, uh, gaps for guys to run through and lanes for guys to run through. So, uh, you know, it was it was a special group. No doubt. And, I, you, you know, <clears throat> you already mentioned the numbers, Dell, but I, I want to get back to it. 2,761 rushing yards is what South Carolina picked up in that 1984 season. I know I talked about the beginning of the show, but, I mean, again – you were part of an offensive line. Then in 84, South Carolina set school records for touchdowns with 49. 
points with 371 and total offense with 5,095 yards. Um, I'll ask you because you guys obviously start the season 9-0 and with some huge wins over – you guys went to Notre Dame and won, beat NC State, beat Florida State, beat Georgia early on in the year. When did it click for you? Was there a game, was there a specific moment when you thought to yourself, this could be a really, really special season? Absolutely, and I think everybody on that team would tell you, and I think most of them would tell you the same thing I'm telling you, that it was the Georgia game, uh, the third game of the season. Uh, the Georgia game, while I was there and, and, and for a lot of years afterwards, has always been a very important game, uh, and, and a game that would sort of set the tone for the season or just let you know where you were at as a team. We um, And another thing about that offensive line, I'll, I'll say real quick, and I'll get back to my other point is they were all seniors. That was five seniors on that offensive line. But we didn't start off too good in the Citadel game. Uh, we struggled. Um, we barely won. We scored a touchdown late. And, and then they take the kickoff after we score to take the lead and run, a, and run the kickoff back about 80 yards. And it looked like we were going to lose the game. But we hung on to win. And then the next week we beat Duke 21 to nothing. But it was a defense that really, really – set the tone in that game we still were somewhat struggling offensively but that Georgia game uh we knew that was a good football team Georgia's always got a good football team and uh, I'll never forget it was just a unique atmosphere it was a different atmosphere that night in the locker room waiting to, to go out on the field as we were getting dressed and getting taped and preparing for the game it was just a, a very quiet confidence in that locker room and uh, beating them was a big deal for us and I think it sort of set the tone for the season. But then the next one that really, really did a lot, too, to sort of catapult us on our way was going our first road game. I think we played our first five games at home. And our first road game was Notre Dame. And we went up there, and uh, we were down. And in the uh, fourth quarter, scored 26 points to beat those guys and came from behind to beat those guys. And uh, that was a big deal for us and a big win for us to take your first road game to, you know, the hallowed grounds of Notre Dame and in that stadium. And right there at touchdown, Jesus, we scored all those touchdowns in the fourth quarter. And uh, to be able to do that was really a confidence booster as well. A very, very important game for that season. Yeah, I was going to say, Dell, it's just very interesting how we're talking back again about the 84 season and that South Carolina Georgia game. It's, I mean, it's still kind of the measuring stick game, especially when it's the second or third game of the season. I feel like both programs, especially for South Carolina, when the Gamecocks win that one, you sort of have a feeling it's going to be a really, really good year. And it's just interesting to hear that was the, you know, that was certainly the case in 1984 as well. I, I definitely wanted to touch on that, that, uh, that Notre Dame game. Obviously, you guys, again, like you said, scored 26 points in the second half, or I think you said the final quarter. But obviously, just going on the road and beating the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, again, you talked about such a historic venue such a historic program with all the tradition and history they had. I mean, talk about that game. I know that's one that had to be really, really special, not just for South Carolina fans, but for the entire team, the program, the players, everyone involved. It was. It was a huge, you know, a huge deal for us. And like I said earlier, they had come to Columbia the year before and just, I mean, just split our head wide open. And it wasn't even a close game. I think it was 30 to 6. And it was raining. It was a miserable long night, and they just completely dominated us. But for being the first road game in that atmosphere against that opponent, and I'll tell you something else that happened that game that will always, as long as I have a memory, 
will be etched in that memory. This second half, especially that fourth quarter up there in South Bend, was back and forth. It was crazy. We Listen, we turned the ball over several times and uh, could have scored much more than we did, but we turned the ball over several times. But anyway, it's just a back-and-forth game. It's a nail-biter, a gut-wrencher, whatever phrase you want to use to describe it. But I'll never forget during the timeout, the offense is out on the field, and Jerry Faust was the head coach at Notre Dame. This was a guy that had come from Molar High School, uh, one of the great high school programs in the country at that time, and got the Notre Dame job. And I looked over, and, and this guy's just pacing up and down the sidelines, and he's got a sweatshirt on, and he's got the sleeves pulled over his, his hands. You can't see his hand because his, the sleeve's so far over his hand, and he's just chewing on his sweatshirt like he was chewing on his nails. But he's just literally biting on that sweatshirt and gnawing on it and just pacing back and forth. And I looked over at my sideline, and there stood Joe, just like a statue had a marble in his hand. He had that black Carolina cap on and those black fighter pilot shades. And I thought, wow, I'm glad this guy over here is my head coach because this cat over here is about to fall apart. This game's getting to him. But I look over and I see my coach, and he's as solid as a rock. And uh, it was just an image that meant a lot to me and one that has always stuck with me. My how times have changed, Dell. With uh, and it's funny because you hear the stories of Joe Morrison, but to hear it directly from you, like just coaches back in the day of chewing red man or smoking tobacco on the sidelines, it's uh, it, times have certainly changed since those days. I bet you would agree. Oh, absolutely. You, uh, a coach, wouldn't last one game now if he got caught with a burner on the sidelines. He'd be gone. But uh, but Joe went through quite a few of them on the sidelines. No doubt. So another game I want to touch on, Dell. obviously, before uh, we get into the rest of the season is the Florida State game. Number 11, Florida State comes to town. It's a packed house. You guys are ranked fifth in the country, and you beat those guys 38-26. Uh, just, just talk about that game. Again, it's kind of a similar situation, but at home, another really historic program in Florida State. I, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe Bobby Bowden was already there. Um, just he, talk, he was. Yeah, yeah, just talk about that game, beating Florida State. And, again, you guys get to 9-0 and after the victory. Um, I know it had to be a pretty special day at Williams-Brice. It was. And, and, you know, this was back when um, there weren't college games on every station. There weren't, you know, 50 games on on a Saturday. Uh, we were on ABC. Uh, I think kickoff was at 3.30 or 4. It was late in the afternoon. It was the game of the week. And uh, so we knew that. The whole nation was going to be watching, or at least the part of the nation that watches college football would be watching this game. And again, this was a team that the year before we'd gone to Tallahassee and we played them pretty tough, but they pulled away in the end and I think beat us by 14 or 15 points. And uh, again, we're, we're facing a traditional I mean, a team that's got tradition about them. Coach Bowden had already done some good things there. And uh, this was another big stepping stone for us. And we got out to a huge lead. I mean, a, a big lead. And we turned the ball over several times and, and allowed them to get back in the game. But it really wasn't as close as the score indicated. I think you said 38 to 26, but it really wasn't even that close. We just did some stupid things late in the ball game that allowed them to get in. Uh, one of our defensive backs, Bryant Gilliard, had four interceptions, had a great game. Um, but it was it was a huge, huge game for us. and. Uh, not only for, you know, Gamecock Nation, but from a, from a national standpoint, that the nation got to see us play that afternoon and got to see a pretty, pretty good football team uh, 
beat another very good football team and beat them pretty handily too. No doubt. So, Dell, simply put, you guys, you know, beat Florida State, you're number two in the country, a game that is still talked about to this day. South Carolina travels up to Annapolis, Maryland to take on Navy, and you guys lose 38-21 to to Navy. Just can you explain what happened that day? You know, I wish I could. Um, I felt like we had a good week of practice. Uh, you know, we were coming off the Florida State game and that big emotional win. And then right after Navy, we've got Clemson. So maybe just of them being in between those two big games. But I don't think it was a lack of preparation or a lack of, you know, uh, not being into the game. We had opportunities very early in that game uh, to take a lead on them. Uh, I think the first three or four times we had the football, we had put ourselves in position to score. Uh, I think we may have missed a field goal, uh, turned the ball over, but we just didn't take advantage of those opportunities. I'll never forget it was just a cold day up there. It was a, you know, beautiful. The sunshine was it was it was sunshining. It was bright, not a cloud in the sky, but it was brutally cold. And uh, we just kept making some mistakes early in the game, and it allowed those guys to hang around. And you know that the military schools, if anything, they're disciplined, they're tough. They're not going to give up. They're going to fight. And they did. And they continued to. And the next thing you know, it's 31 to 7 or 38 to 7. And they've got a huge lead on us. And I always thought that we could make a comeback. We've come back so many times in that year and won. And, uh, but we just weren't able to overcome that huge lead that day. And it was, man, it was like just getting punched in your mouth and your guts. It, um, we knew what it had cost us. We knew, we knew what we had done. And I think still to this day, probably the biggest loss we've ever had in football as far as what it potentially could have allowed us to do, which was be the number one team in the nation and possibly play for a national championship. And I'll never forget what really drove it home. What we have lost is the next day, every Sunday afternoon, the team would get together and um, there's a, a big theater-like building or um, up under the stadium, and the team would meet in the – we called it the theater room or the amphitheater room. And the whole team would meet there every Sunday, and uh, Coach Morrison would come in and talk for a few minutes about the good things we did in the game, talk about some of the things we needed to correct, and he would just give us his recap of the game and how he felt and what to expect and practice this upcoming week, and then we would break up and go into our – individual uh, meeting rooms with our uh, position coaches. And for nine Sundays, boy, that room was loud. It was joyous. It was raucous when Coach Morrison would come in and he'd literally have to just, hey, hey, quieten down, you know, okay, let's settle down, let's talk. But for nine Sundays, it was that kind of atmosphere. But that Sunday, nobody said a word, man. It was deathly quiet in that room. And he came in and he there's a big chalkboard behind him, and he wrote down the numbers one, two, three, four. And beside one, he wrote number one in the country. Beside two, he wrote Orange Bowl. Beside three, he wrote what the Orange Bowl payout was at that time. And then on number four, he wrote National Champs. And he turned around and looked at us, and he said, that's what you guys just lost yesterday. He said, that's what you've cost yourself. He said, now let's see how you can respond from that. And if you can pick yourself up 
We've got a big game ahead of us, but I want you to look at that. And don't ever forget, that's what you cost yourself right there. Man, I'm telling you, it was just like, wow, you got to be kidding me. Dude, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, that's strong. But it was. That was what we had cost ourselves. And we didn't get over that. We had a horrible week of practice. It was a group that was really discouraged and uh, down on themselves. And it was evident by the way we played at the first half at Clemson. But there was something that happened at halftime at Clemson or right before halftime that we started playing better. We got a late touchdown before the half. And, of course, that second half was a much different game at Clemson. But, yeah, what an expensive loss. Without a doubt. Joe Morrison definitely, uh, you know, hammered at home, no doubt. But, uh, you know, like you mentioned, to see you guys bounce back again, you do go to Clemson again, a second-half comeback. You guys get the win, 22-21. Um, obviously, again, not, not again, finishing where you want to, being where you want to, but you're able to beat Clemson, which in South Carolina fans' minds is a really big deal, as you obviously know. I haven't asked you about it to this point, but I want to get your take, Dell, on just – you know, you were a guy, again, that at one point was committed to Clemson, came to South Carolina, and I believe 84 was probably the first time in your career that you had been able to beat those guys, and especially in their house. Everybody knows the 84 game is the, the hold that Tiger game with William Refrigerator Perry, a guy that you lined up across from. Just, just talk about, number one, your experiences of the South Carolina-Clemson rivalry and that 84 game in particular, just how special that was to – you know, kind of avenge the loss the, the, the previous week and get a win over your arch rival? Well, it was huge. And, and, and um, like I said earlier in this conversation, I grew up a Gamecock fan. And uh, as, a, you know, my grandfather, my dad's dad, and my dad's brothers, they all went to South Carolina. And they had a great, great uh, – they educated me on the history of Gamecock football. I learned it at their feet, man, just everything about Gamecock football. Teams, players. Uh, and, of course, I knew the importance of Carolina Clemson. And, and the first game I started uh, in that Carolina Clemson rivalry was in 81. And literally the night before the game, I could not sleep. I was so – it wasn't nervousness. It was just – there was an anxiety about me. I'm getting ready to start in a Carolina Clemson game, a rivalry I grew up with. I'm very familiar with it. I know about it. I know about the history of it. And I'm going to be starting in this thing, man. And I could not sleep that night. I mean, I paced the floor there in my hotel room. Just in anticipation of getting out there and playing. And so now we've able to put the, the Navy loss behind us and go up there and win. And I can assure you, at the end of that game in 84 in Clemson, nobody was worried about what had happened at Navy the week before. We were elated because it was the first time that I had beat them. It was the first time any of the guys on that team had beat Clemson, and we beat them there. I would have rather beat them there than beat them in William Bright Stadium. And it was the first time they had ever lost in the all-orange uniforms. Uh, If you know the history of that, the first time they ever broke out those all-orange uniforms was the 1980 Carolina-Clemson game. And um, the Willie Underwood two interceptions, and where they beat us, and it was an upset. We We should have beat them, and they had not lost in those all-orange outfits until that day. So to go up there and beat them after being down 21-3 to and beating them, after all the taunting we took and all the times we heard anchors away played because of the Navy beatdown we suffered, man, it was, it was just great to be able to do it there, do it on their field, do it in front of their fans, do it in the all-orange uniforms. 
and for all of us, the first time we'd ever done it. So uh, it was just sweet, man. It was a wonderful day. I'm sure you've got to get a huge smile on your face every time you see the uh, the Mike Hold hold that Tiger picture because it's obviously still one that is very, very popular amongst Gamecock fans. Oh, it is, and I, I was proud of Mike. And, I, and, you know, that's another thing. I played against William. He played at Aiken High School. I played at Irmo. Back then, we were in the same region, so we played each other every year. So I'd been playing against William since high school and, and of course, all these years at Carolina and him at Clemson. And, um, you know, when you're in a game and, and the quarterback's going to take a knee, you let the defensive lineman know, hey, guys, he's just going to take a knee. This thing's over. We're in victory formation. You know, I'm not coming off the football. And uh, you, know, you just let them know that. And, of course, he come blowing through there anyway, all 350 pounds of him. And Mike just stuck that football out in his face and just dropped it at his feet. And you're right, it's one of the most iconic Gamecock photos ever. And will always be that way. <laughs> no doubt. So, personally for you, again, 1984, again, you guys go uh, – excuse me, you guys go to the Gator Bowl, lose to Oklahoma State. But finish, you know, again, before the Spur Steve Spurrier era, you guys would finish 10-2 and two overall. It was the most successful Gamecock football season of all time. And I'm sure you would probably argue, and I don't think it would be a bad argument to say – could be arguably the greatest South Carolina Gamecocks football team of all time, if if not for one, maybe call it fluky upset. But for you personally, Dell, like I mentioned, you're one of only four consensus All-American football players. Um, after that 1984 season, you were selected an All-American starter by American Football Coaches Association, AP, Walter Camp Football Foundation. Just talk about what clicked for you specifically. I know you talked about you were surrounded by four other seniors, which I know that made a huge deal for you. but for you personally, I know you were a guy, I don't want to also miss out on this, you added 50 pounds of muscle. Uh, I know, I'm sure that helped. But what all clicked for you for that 1984 season for you to be one of only four consensus All-American football players at University of South Carolina? Well, I think when something like that happens, a lot of things have to come together. Number one, I worked my tail off, as did all those other guys, but I worked my backside off getting ready for that season, during the off-season, building up to the season. I mean, I, I just lived in that weight room. I, I, I lived on those stadium steps, running running those steps and running and just getting into shape and trying to get bigger and stronger. Um, I mean, devoured film, everything that you need to do to make yourself, some, make yourself a better player. I did, and I did it abundantly. And um, I was obsessed with it. I knew it was my last year, and I wanted to go out uh, you know, leaving my mark, not only me, but this team, but I was surrounded by four other guys on that offensive line that were special players. As a matter of fact, going into that season, the other guard, Jim Walsh, was the one that the sports information department was really pushing for probably potentially some All-American consideration. Jim was that good of a football player and uh, a great offensive lineman. Uh, but I had a lot of good things happen to me, as the team did. Had we been five and six, I don't know that I would have gotten the attention that I got. I think being a part of a probably the team that sort of captivated college football for most of that year was a big deal. We got a lot of attention. Um, you know, had several games on TV. I had some of my better games against some of the bigger programs in the country. Uh, I mean, I played lights out against Georgia, the greatest football game I've ever played. I got a lot of high praise from Vince Dooley after that game. I did the same thing at Notre Dame, the same thing with Florida State, the same thing with Clemson. So some of my better games were against the more bigger opponents and bigger-name teams. So I think all that came together 
um, to allow me to experience the things that I was able to experience with being a, a first-team All-American, but not only a first-team All-American, but a consensus All-American. And the first South Carolina native to ever achieve that, of course, Clowney's done it since then, but um, that, was a, that was just so much that came together that allowed that to happen. Uh, how, you know, I'm sure it meant, and I know you just touched on it, but Dell, I'm sure it, it meant something, you know, it obviously meant a lot to you when it happened, but I mean, we sit here in 2019 now, when you look back and say, you know, you're one of only just four. I, I mean, what, where does, that has to be a really, really special thing. Cause again, that's not just, I mean, this is something that not everybody has done only four guys in the history of the South Carolina football program. When it, you sit here current day, I mean, and I'm sure that's something when people see you out or talk to you, if you ever go to any South Carolina game, I'm sure you probably still do, you're reminded of, and people talk about those days and you being a consensus All-American. I mean, where does that sit for you amongst all of your accomplishments? Because I have to imagine that's something really, really, really special. It is. And to be in the company that I'm in, when you look at the, the other three, George Rogers, uh, Jadavion Clowney, and Melvin, Melvin Ingram, uh, to be in the same group with those guys, it's just amazing. It really is. And, uh, and I'm not belittling that, but I'll tell you, the most important thing to me and the thing that I am most proud of uh, from an individual standpoint for that season and being one of only four consensus All-Americans is a big deal, and I'm very proud of that. But the thing that makes me the proudest is that on that team that was that good, that successful, came that close to playing for a national championship, that my teammates voted me their offensive captain and our coaches voted me the offensive most valuable player. On an offense that produced over 5,000 yards and that coaching staff said, hey, we think number 62 was the most valuable player on that offense. And my teammates felt the same way about me being their captain. That's more important to me than any other award that I won or could have won. That The guys and the coaches that saw me every day in the weight room, in the film room, on the practice field, uh, you know, watching film late night in my room, that those people thought enough of me to give me those honors. That, that ranks above even being a consensus All-American. That's awesome. So, Dell, let's move into after your career at South Carolina. I know you tried a career in the NFL with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Atlanta Falcons. Um, I guess before we get into your pro wrestling career, just talk about really briefly your stint in the NFL, just kind of what you learned and, um, you know, what was that experience like going from college to the NFL ranks? Well, it was an interesting experience. It was a short experience. It didn't last very long. But it, you, you realize that uh, there are just only a handful of jobs that are available at that level. And, um, you know, sometimes you can be a very good football player. You could be a consensus All-American and not get one of those jobs. And uh, But I was honored that I had the, the chance to do so. Um, and, uh, you know, like we would mentioned earlier, the biggest jump is from college or high school to college. You know, you get to the NFL and, and you know, there wasn't anybody that was any faster or stronger or, you know, any more physically impressive. I mean, I, I know when I was with the Falcons, um, I had some of the, I think, some of the top lifts going into the season. We had to max out on certain uh, things in the weight room, and, and I was at the top of the list on those things. But when you're only going to keep, eight offensive linemen, and you've got several guys that are playing at a Pro Bowl caliber, you, cal, uh, caliber, you realize, man, I, you know, 
there's only a few spots here that are open and it just didn't work out. And, uh, but I'm glad that I had the opportunity. For sure. So I'm very curious now, Dell. I'm extremely excited to get into this portion of the interview because I, I can, it's kind of funny, Dell. You're the first offensive lineman that I've had on the show, which is obviously a big deal, but you're also the first, and I would certainly think probably the only wrestler I will ever have on this podcast. So I, I'm very, very excited about it. And I've some, I'm someone that, you know, I, I'm obviously from South Carolina group, everybody, in, you know, people in the South like wrestling. It's, it's something that's like really watched and um, I'm excited to get to this. So I'll just ask you simply put, you started your wrestling career in 1988. What got you into it? I mean, was it ever something you had thought about before? Was it something that just got kind of came up out of nowhere? I mean, what made you think, you know, you, you're going to jump into wrestling? Well, number one, I'd always been a huge wrestling fan. Um, I mean, I love pro wrestling as far back as I can remember. I, on Saturdays, uh, I would watch pro wrestling. And Saturday nights, I would watch pro wrestling. Um, we only got it in bits and pieces. I think we had it for an hour on Saturday mornings. And then on Saturday nights, you could get 30 minutes of, of Florida championship wrestling. But uh, I wouldn't miss it. And I was just obsessed with it. I loved it. I, I can vividly remember when my mom would go to the grocery store on Saturdays to get groceries. I would always sit, sit down right there at the magazine rack and look through those wrestling magazines. And I would look through and see guys like Jack Briscoe and Wahoo McDaniel and, and uh, Ric Flair and just, I was just mesmerized by it. And um, I went to my first live event at the Township Auditorium in 1971. And um, a good friend of the family uh, took me, bought a ticket. He knew how much I loved it. I was 10 years old. And uh, I can't remember anything about the card that night except who wrestled the main event. And it was the Briscoe brothers, Jack and Jerry Briscoe against uh, Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson. And we're literally at ringside, and I'm looking at these four guys in the ring. And, I mean, this is, this is Elvis to me. I mean, they're just – they were bigger to me. I was more impressed with these guys than if I'd have been there watching Roman Gabriel or any other player that, you know, at that time that was a big deal in the NFL. I'm watching these guys that I've seen on TV every Saturday, and I'm up close and personal with them. And uh, I left there that night, the ripe old age of 10. And I told the guy that took me, I said, I'm going to do that one day. So I'd always had that in me that I wanted to do it at some point in time when football was over. And um, after the Falcons released me prior to the start of the 86 season, I came back to Columbia. I got a job and I actually broke into the business in 87. That's when I started training at the fabulous Moolah School, Lillian Ellison. Um, Moolah's probably still to this day one of the most iconic lady wrestlers ever. And um, she was born and raised in Columbia, and uh, she had a wrestling school there on her property. And it was really geared more toward girls. She had trained a lot of women that had gone on to have very successful careers and become big stars in pro wrestling. And I was one of the few guys that went through there, but that's all where it started. And, uh, and I was nervous that day I went to meet Moolah. Uh, because, again, I knew who she was. I'd seen Moolah on TV. I'd seen Moolah in those magazines, sitting at those magazine racks when I was a kid looking through that. And, man, I was meeting people that were heroes to me. And But that's where the love of it started and the desire to want to pursue a career in that business. No doubt. So your career ran from 1988 to 2000, Dell. I want to go through really quickly some of the different uh, – 
you know, associations, federations, if you will, you wrestled in the American Wrestling Association, Global Wrestling Federation, World Wrestling Federation, or the WWF, All Japan Pro Wrestling, World Championship Wrestling, um, and then the World Wrestling Federation, again, WWF. I, I want to go back to, though, the one thing I noticed about you, because I know with wrestling, you obviously have to have, you have to have a certain persona. You have to be like a character, if you will. I mean, if you look at wrestling, now you mentioned Ric Flair. I, you know, the first wrestler I think of is like Hulk Hogan. I mean, you you have a certain persona, a certain character. I think it's funny. You always seem to have a flair for the dramatics or a character. Your first ever character, for those that don't know, you were the trooper. And I thought what was so funny is that you played into that by you wrote your opponent's tickets after you beat them as part of your police gimmick and you would hand out plastic police badges to fans as they came to the ring. Talk about where did that idea come from? Because honestly, reading that makes me laugh hysterically inside. And I I just think that's absolutely awesome. Well, I, um, I had, uh, in, in, in working for Mula and going through her, her school and training, she would also run shows around the Midlands of South Carolina to give us guys and girls a chance to get into a ring in front of a crowd and work and perform and, and sort of, you know, hone our skills. And obviously she made money too, so it just wasn't for the benefit of us, but that's what it allowed us to do. Well, on one of those shows that she ran here in Columbia, she brought in the guy named Wahoo McDaniel. Wahoo was living, he had a permanent home in Charlotte, but he was working for the AWA uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The AWA was owned and operated by another iconic guy in the business, Vern Gagne. And uh, Wahoo came down and worked that show for Moolin. I was on the show, and um, we just hit it off. And uh, he said, look, man, he said, I think you got an opportunity in this business to make a career out of it, make a lot of money, do very well. He said, I'll be back up in Minneapolis next week. He said, I'm going to talk to Vern about you and Vern's son, Greg. They were running the AWA. And um, so I got a call. I got a call from Vern Gagne. And, man, I was blown away. I'm thinking, dude, I'm talking to Vern Gagne on the phone. And he wants me to come work for him. And um, so when I got up there, uh, I was just working as Dell Wilkes. Now, I'll try to make a long story short, but one of the guys that helped train me at Moolah's and would work those little shows that she would have around the Midlands was in real life a deputy sheriff in Orangeburg County. So it was natural on the weekends when he would work those shows that he would just be an extension of what he did in everyday life. And he worked, I think, as a super enforcer, but he went to the ring with his highway, I mean, his deputy sheriff outfit on. And he called me when I first got up to the AWA. And said, look, man, I'm going to send you some of my highlight tapes. Will you pass it on to Vern and Wahoo to see if they'd be interested in you? I said, sure. So he mailed it to me. And I gave it to Vern. And about a week later, he called me. He said, I need you to come by the office. I want to talk to you. So when I get in, he says, you know, the tape you gave me of that guy in Orange, I mean, in South Carolina that works as the deputy sheriff. I said, yeah. He said, we have no interest in him. But man, do we like that idea for a character. And here's what I'm thinking. We're going to put a a belt on you, and, you know, you're going to have the handcuffs and the flashlight, and we're going to call you the trooper. He said, you just got to look like a, you know, a square-jawed highway patrolman in the South with that southern accent you got. And he said, you're going to write tickets uh, to your opponent. After you beat them, you're going to have a submission hold, and um, you're going to hand out plastic badges. And I thought, man, that's wonderful. I love it. I'm all in. Let's do it. And uh, it turned out to be a big deal for me because the AWA, while they were a struggling company at that time and one that would eventually go out of business, 
they were on ESPN five days a week, Monday through Friday. So I had a chance to be on nationwide TV five days a week. And it opened, eventually would open up a lot of other doors for me. So that character was a big deal for me because it really got my foot in the door and helped open a lot of other doors for me, even though that company would eventually go out of business and I would eventually do another character. But that was a very important time for my career. No doubt. So I, I want to move ahead again, Dell. Obviously, later in your career, you switched up from the Trooper to the Patriot. And it's funny, I actually, uh, I'll be honest, did a YouTube search of you of the Patriot before we came on this interview and was able to see kind of your entrance, obviously coming out with the mask and the American flag. And I know that's really the one that stuck, you know, you're better known as the Patriot. But uh, I, I want to talk about specifically your entrance, I guess, because you, you know, it's funny, I think, we talked about earlier, you talked about when you run out for the 2001 entrance and I guess the type of zone you're in and the, the adrenaline rush you're feeling. I mean, talk about, you know, again, because just the YouTube videos I've seen, you look locked in, laser focused, and, you know, you're really playing the part well. But talk about um, when they call Del Wilkes the Patriot up there and you walk out and you've got the American flag and your mask on. I mean, just talk about those days, I guess. What is that feeling like for those of us that will never know? Oh, it's amazing. Um, I don't care how tired you are. If you've been on the road a month and in that month you've worked 28 days, which that's happened a lot. But the night, but, but the, the, the moment you walk through that curtain and you walk down that aisle and you're waving that flag and all the attention is on you, the house lights are down and that spotlight's on you. And those people are, you know, stomping their feet and they're clapping their hands and they're chanting USA. USA or Patriot, Patriot, oh man, it's, it's just, it's indescribable. If you've never felt it, I don't know that I can do it justice in trying to describe it. It's just an unbelievable feeling. And you had mentioned earlier about, you know, doing characters and, and characters, it's something that you're comfortable with. And I think one of the reasons that character took off the way it did and gained the popularity that it did was that was, that fit me. That's me. Um, I'm a guy that's deeply in love with his country and extremely proud of his country in spite of whatever issues we may have. So I wasn't having to act. I wasn't having, this wasn't a stretch for me. This just fit me. It's who I am. It's how I feel. I love waving that flag and everything it represents. So it was an easy thing for me to do and to portray that character. And uh, it was just a natural fit for me. And I think that's one of the reasons we were able to have the success we had with it. Listen, I know Steve Austin. I know Steve very well. And Steve Austin, the individual, has got a lot of stone cold in him. That's part of who he is. <laughs> and I know Ric Flair. And, and Ric Flair, away from the ring, is the Ric Flair you see. He's that loud guy. He's that party guy. Let's have fun. He's that guy that can run his mouth and talk. So I think all these guys that are successful, they do a character that in a lot of ways is just an extension of them. And that was the case with me and the Patriot. How, how cool is it that Ric Flair is also a Gamecock fan? I, I feel like that's got to be a very cool connection. <laughs> yeah, it is. Certainly is. I, I'll ask you, I, you know, Dell. we're going to wrap up here in just a second, but uh, I'm, I'm very curious to know, your, what was your go-to move? I feel like every wrestler has like a go-to move, if you will. What, what was yours? Well, um, for a number of years uh, – as the Patriot, it was the Patriot missile, which was a, a flying shoulder off the top turnbuckle. Uh, but after doing that for a number of years and, and literally blowing both of my triceps out and blowing 
both of my elbows out and having surgery after surgery on my elbows, I needed to come up with something that would keep me grounded and not have to leave my feet. So then we came up with the Uncle Slam. It's just a full Nelson hold that, that literally turns into where you, you got your opponent in a full Nelson and then you just pick him up and slam him on his back on the way back down to the mat. So um, it was a little easier on my body. It didn't uh, get me hurt quite as much. So started off with the Patriot missile, but ended up with the Uncle Slam. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. So I know you retired in 2000, obviously had some injuries. And uh, I guess I'll ask you simply, when you look back on your wrestling career, I mean, what, what was, when you look back on it, I guess, what is it like to reflect? Is it similar as your football career? I mean, I know you had a lot of good memories and you're obviously really successful, someone very well known. And I have to imagine you have a lot of good memories from it. Oh, I do. It's, um, you know, what, what was so cool about it is that kid that night that went to the township auditorium at 10 years old and he saw the Briscoe brothers in the ring and he saw Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson and he had looked at magazines with Dory Funk and Wahoo and Flair in it. That kid got to work with those guys and he got to become friends with them and got to be co-workers with them and travel the roads with them and, and uh, travel the world with them. And that was, was a dream come true. I, uh, it was something I'd always wanted to do as a kid. Something just fascinated me. And uh, it just got my attention. But that kid that night, it was 10 years old, later down the road, became friends with all those guys and worked with them and worked against them and beat them and got his hands raised against them and just had a wonderful career. And um, great memories, great, 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 great memories. It's taken a toll on my body. I've had 16 surgeries as a result of that career. Sometimes I don't walk too good because of that. But those memories, they always put a smile on my face. To be able to accomplish that and to be able to enjoy that career and make the friends and the relationships that I have. And, you know, I still get to do it. I don't get in the ring. I haven't been in the ring. I think the last time I got in the ring and worked the match was in 2005. Uh, but I still do personal appearances and go to these fan fest events where you get to see your buddies again, the guys that you traveled the world with, and you get to hang out with them, and you get to mingle with the fans and sign autographs and take pictures. So even though I don't get in the ring and do those things, I'm still a part of that business and still enjoy being able to be around the guys and to be around the wrestling fan, who I find to be some of the greatest fans on the face of the earth. It's amazing. These fans can tell you things and remember things about your career that I don't remember. Certain matches and certain feuds and certain situations or what I tell you it's a great thing to and I hear it all the time uh when I started doing the Patriot character and I was working for the Global Wrestling Federation and we ended up on ESPN Monday through Friday from four to five o'clock and I can't tell you the thousands upon thousands of times that I've heard and still hear hey man when I was a kid I got home from school, and as long as I got my homework done, my mom and dad let me watch the Global Wrestling Federation, and I watched the Patriot. Man, you were my favorite wrestler. As a kid, every day when I got home from school, man, I couldn't wait for the Global Wrestling Federation to come on ESPN where I could watch the Patriot. I've heard that countless times, and it's a great thing to know that you are able to be a part of their life and, and to do that and, and to have some sort of hopefully positive influence on them. So it, it, it is. It's really, really special memories. That's so awesome, man. Honestly, that, that's crazy. Well, Dell, I'm going to get you out of here. Last question I have, I have for you, though. Obviously, it's a Gamecocks podcast. I'm curious. 
obviously we've heard your, your greatest single individual achievement at South Carolina, but I'm curious, what is your, when you look back, you had to pick one, your favorite memory as a Gamecock. My overall favorite memory as a Gamecock would be going the 84 Clemson game. Um, and for all the reasons that we talked about a while ago, uh, you got a group of guys that had never beat them, never. And, uh, we, you know, we never could wear that medal. We never could brag about it. We'd never beat Clemson. But when you take the circumstances that surrounded it, a game that cost us literally a chance to play for a national championship, and to overcome that and to go up there and be down 21 to 3, and all those other things we talked about, those orange outfits, and they'd never done this and never lost that, and to be able to do it there, that is without a doubt probably the highlight of my four years there. Um, and you did it as a team, and you look around that locker room after the game, and boy, you see the smiles on the faces and the coaches congratulating each other and hugging each other, and all those bad memories of losing the Navy are gone. They're flushed down the toilet. Now you're celebrating a win over your in-state rivals at their place. So I'd have to say that would be the highlight of it for me. Well, Dell, I just want to say I really, really do appreciate you taking the time. Obviously, kept a little, kept you a little long, but just awesome stuff. I mean, a lot of great memories, and I feel like we could go another hour or two about the, the your entire wrestling career more in depth. Might have to get you back on for that, but Dell, really do appreciate you taking the time, and uh, let's do it again sometime soon for sure. I would love to, and I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. So for Dell Wilkes, I'm Chris Phillips. We appreciate you guys tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of the Bird Show. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.